<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't hear anything from the index funds. Where are they? <laughs> uh, it's really, uh, it's really be, it really feels good to get back and be doing this in person. We've it's been three years, and uh, uh, it's a lot better seeing actual shareholders, owners, partners, and. Uh, We, we uh, Charlie, Charlie and I are now uh, uh, combined. We've uh, around for fractions. Uh, the two of us are 190 years old, and, uh, <laughs> and I really think you're entitled if you're the owner of a company and you've got two guys, 98 and 91 running the company, you're entitled to actually see him in person. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it, it, it really shouldn't be too much to ask that, uh, I mean, for example, if we had, a, we had a manager someplace that was 98, I might want to send somebody by occasionally to see whether he was cutting about paper dolls or something. <laughs> so, so, uh, 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 we probably do things that are a lot more foolish than cutting out paper dolls, but but uh, but we're having a lot of fun doing it, and uh, and we really have a lot of fun uh, when you come visit us. At, uh, uh, actually, uh, we had uh, to go back a few years. We've had a couple uh, a couple of managers that uh, that suffered from dementia, probably many more, but I mean, I'm just a couple of known ones, actually. And, and, and uh, uh, there was one fellow that Charlie and I really loved. And uh, uh, he, he ran a business for us. Charlie was out in California. Charlie would see him occasionally, and I, I didn't see him, but everything seemed fine. And, and then we found out that he'd really been suffering. Uh, uh, from dementia for quite a while, and uh, and he really was a wonderful friend of both of ours. But but the business had done fine, so that's become our our test. Really, is that for new businesses, <laughs> and we, we we try to find something that guy with Alzheimer's can run actually, and that, uh, <laughs> uh, and you don't have as much competition. Or businesses like that, <laughs> the guy sitting there cutting out paper dolls, and you know that's our man. <laughs> uh, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, uh, two fellows who really work at Berkshire. Uh, uh, on Charlie's left, Greg Abel, who who runs all the uh, operations outside. Yeah. Yeah. And next to him is, I, I, I ran the insurance business for about 15 years unsuccessfully, and then fortunately, the fellow on the far left came in one day, and I've written about it, but he came in on a Saturday, and, and I was opening the mail, and, and uh, he said that, uh, that 
he'd be happy to run our insurance business. I said, have you ever run an insurance business? And he said, no. And as I mentioned, I said, well, you know, I never won one either, so I'm not doing so hot, so <laughs> give it a try. And, uh, you know, he tra transformed Berkshire Hathaway, and, uh, and a G. Jane is here with us. And, um, Uh, what we'll do today, and I have to remind myself from time to time that the people here, of course, saw that movie and everything, but of course, we're, we're webcasting. The, so I'll probably make some references to the movie or something that'll puzzle millions of people out there, but you'll get it. So <laughs> the, uh, we're going to uh, talk for uh, a little while about uh, what's happened uh, uh, in the last quarter and bring up a few other things that you might be interested in. Uh, and uh, uh, we will then, uh, whenever that's finished, uh, we'll go on to uh, questions and we will take the questions until noon. We'll break for an hour. That's... Uh, Midwest time, for those of you who are watching in other time zones. We'll go on till noon, and uh, uh, we'll break for an hour. And then uh, Charlie and I will come back, and we'll take more questions uh, until 3.30, and then we'll convene the shareholders meeting at 3.45. We'll take a break for 15 minutes, and, and, uh, and then we'll do the shareholders meeting. And when that's done, we'll... Uh, uh, We'll all uh, go our various ways. Uh, I do want to report, incidentally, that uh, uh, you've been doing your part in terms of the room we have adjacent to this uh, 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 location, uh, where we've been yesterday for five hours. From noon to five, we had 12,000 uh, shareholders come and just spend money on everything we could think of to solve them. But, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, brought in, uh, we brought in 11 tons of seized candy. Uh, and uh, <laughs> if we don't sell out, Charlie and I get the rest. So, uh, <laughs> but but uh, uh, you did your part. She sold more. They set a record yesterday for the Friday afternoon meeting. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty heartening, yeah. Uh, incidentally, I've got a box of C's candy here, and uh, uh, it's very, it's, it's sort of interesting. Uh, on this, on this uh, cover, which I hope you can see, um, there's a picture of a woman who was born in 1854. And today, she probably gets her picture seen more often than just about any, any woman in America in terms of uh, 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 a commercial product or something of the sort. So we've got her picture up in over 200 stores and uh, uh, on every box of candy. 
That's Mary C., born in 1854. A lot of people think this is me in drag, but that is not true. I mean, uh, uh, there's, there's a certain resemblance, but uh, it, it's just not. These rumors are started by our competitors. Don't pay any attention. Uh, so uh, we will, that's our schedule for the day. And what we will do, we like to give all, we like to give shareholders, uh, owners, uh, partners, we like to give everybody the same information at the same time and preferably do it when stock markets aren't open. It seems to us that that's, everybody ought to be on the same playing field. It's very interesting. Uh, we don't know how many shareholders we've got. They've changed the, the rules over time uh, uh, as to uh, registered holders and getting stock certificates and all that sort of thing. So, so we can't keep track of it like 50 or 75 years ago where we had an actual shareholders list. But we're told, we're told by the people who mail out our information. Uh, it's a firm in, I think, New Jersey. Uh, let's see, Broadridge. Uh, and they pretty well do this for very significant percentage of American corporations. So they, they actually mail things out for us and they bill us for three and a half million uh, accounts. Uh, and uh, I'll take their word for it. I mean, the more accounts they bill us for, we pay them by the account. So, you know, I, I, some days I feel like I'd like to count. But that, that, is, a, that is a lot of, a lot of people that trust us. And, and they rightly, in my view, overwhelmingly, feel that they're our partners. Uh, and some of them will like reading financial information they've given us, uh, that we give you. Uh, 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 but most, a, a great many of them just say, you know, we've saved this money and we trust you and Charlie. And that's a great motivator, this trust. And, uh, you know, take care of it. And, and I'm not going to learn accounting and try to read all those statements or anything of the sort. But we do believe that for those who do use the information we release, they should all get it at the same time. And we have a few institutions that even though in the third paragraph of my letter every year, I, um, I uh, refer to the fact that um, uh, uh, we want to have everybody get the same information and that we don't feel that anybody's entitled to special meetings. We can't hold three million special meetings with our partners. And, uh, but we like the fact that everybody gets the same deal. Everybody gets the same information. Up this morning, uh, on the internet, we put up uh, our 10Q uh, for the uh, quarter, and I'd like to uh, take a few th through a few comments on that. 
and, uh, and a few other comments, and then we'll get to the questions. When we get to the questions, we will alternate between those mailed in by shareholders, which uh, Becky Quick at CNBC, and people who've helped her have sort of curated to get what they think are the most interesting questions from shareholders. They're not, they're not from, the, from CNBC itself, but they are from shareholders, owners. And we'll alternate the ones from sent in versus the ones that come here. And we don't get the questions ahead of time, and we enjoy getting surprised by, I'd say, almost all questions. And, uh, 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 and we will keep doing that, like I say, with a break for lunch uh, until 3.30 when we'll have the meeting. So uh, I would like to uh, uh, start by putting up the uh, first slide. And which is Q1, and there we have it. That's what we published this morning. And there are really no great surprises uh, in, in terms of the quarter. I mean, there, there are always some companies that are doing very well, and there are some companies that aren't for one reason or another. And uh, in the end, as you can see, uh, we prefer to use something called operating earnings. Now, that is after depreciation and interest and, and taxes, unlike other companies that prefer to tell you anything but what they earned. Uh, we have a, but we do separate out capital gains. Now, over time, as I've said, over the next 20 years, I would expect us net to have more capital gains than not. But, you know, who knows? I hope you... You know, I, I'll report to you in 20 years whether that's happened or not. <laughs> uh, but uh, as you can see, we made about seven billion dollars in the first quarter, and and that's real seven billion. I mean, we the, we basically have that in in cash when the uh, when the quarter's over. That isn't true every quarter exactly, but but. Uh, uh, we uh, we are talking about seven billion of of real money uh, in that, and those managers who the people here saw in the movie, uh, they're the people that that work with your money to uh, accomplish uh, what Charlie and I never thought would never really planned or anything to happen, but it just sort of uh, came about uh, uh, with sort of putting one foot uh, in front of the other. Uh, now, obviously, the last two years in particular, including the first quarter, there were all kinds of unusual things happen in our various businesses. I mean, it, uh, uh, when we had the meeting uh, two years ago in the May of, roughly the start of May of uh, uh, 2020, uh, we didn't know what was gonna happen with the pandemic. We didn't know what was gonna happen 
with the economy and, uh, and everybody that thought they did has gotten all kinds of surprises since. But here we are in 2022 and, and Berkshire, like I say, had seven billion of operating earnings and we've got lots and lots and lots of companies. We've got 360,000 people out there that have taken your savings and uh, uh, go to work every day and uh, they have jobs. We deliver products and you put up the money for it and you deserve to. Uh, you, took, you took the risks and, and uh, uh, we feel very good about how things have turned out uh, and we want to keep feeling good. And uh, we have a we have a extreme aversion uh, to incurring any permanent loss with your funds. You know, it, if if I went broke, it wouldn't really make any difference. I mean, it, it, uh, I'd keep doing what I do. I'd figure out a way to read a paper and watch a little TV and, and think about things and talk to Charlie. And, but the idea of losing permanently other people's money, uh, people who trust us, uh, really, really, uh, is, that's just the future I don't want to have. And as Charlie says, uh, Charlie says, all I want to know is where I'll die, so I'll never go there. And uh, um, uh, that seems pretty sound. Uh, uh, he has a way of... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in case you missed it, Charlie says it's worked so far. And, and, uh, the, uh, uh, and we, we would die psychologically. Uh, if we lost a lot of other people's money, we wouldn't take it in the first place. It'd be crazy to take, take people's money and lose it if you're gonna feel terrible about doing it. So the one thing I can tell you about Berkshire, I can't predict what our earnings will be and I can't predict what the stock will do and I can't, we don't know. We don't know what the economy will do and all of that sort of thing. But we do know that we wake up every morning and the, we wanna be safer in terms of your eventual investment. Uh, not whether you make the most money or anything. We do not want you to get a terrible result uh, because you've uh, decided to become our partner. And uh, uh, that's a pleasure we'll live by. Now, uh, let's see what we have here. On uh, Q2, it gives some indication of that because we this is kind of interesting. I wrote, I wrote uh, a letter to our owners, and it was dated February 26th, uh, and that was a Saturday, released. But I write the letter all through the year in my mind. I mean, it, it, uh, I don't. Uh, uh, no, we don't have a, anybody that sits out and writes out the letter or anything like that. I mean, it's, this is a letter between partners. And I, I write the letter all year in my head. I'm, I'm, I'm writing next year's letter. Uh, 
I don't write out the words, but I, I have things I want to tell my partners. My sister's a partner, and uh, I'm writing to her in my head. Uh, my older sister died not too long ago, but I used to be writing to both of them, in effect. And I want to tell her you know, what I think and, and, and uh, about the business and what I think she ought to think about it and so on. Uh, uh, so the letter's dated February 26th, and I said not much is going on. Uh, and actually, uh, we, might, we might jump over to Q3, uh, if we will. Uh, uh, so I sent, I sent out a letter on February 26th, but it, that wasn't written on February 26th. And I said, basically, nothing much is happening around here. And I said, we've repurchased some shares, and uh, uh, we, we just aren't seeing anything. And uh, between January 1st and February 18th, as you can see, we spent $2.2 billion, uh, which is half the quarter, you know, so uh, probably 30 trading days in there. And we sold them. So that basically, we didn't do anything. And then uh, uh, in the next uh, three weeks or thereabouts, we spent $40 billion. And uh, incidentally, when I say we spent $40 billion, there's, there's one fellow in the office that does this all. I mean, he buys all the stocks. He buys the government. Buy. He doesn't have an assistant or anything. I just, uh, but he spent $41 billion at, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he, he literally, I mean, it, it, uh, it, and he does other things for me, too. He you know, puts together totals. He, he, he just does what he needs to do. And he's worked in other jobs in Berkshire long ago, but, but he, likes, he likes doing what he does. And uh, he does it very well, and we don't have a department for it. And then, as you can see, it fell off after that. And uh, we did also in the first... In the first uh, uh, Quarter, we spent about 3.1 or 3.2 billion somewhere in that for repurchasing shares, and uh, um, we didn't, you know, we we talked about that in the annual report, and uh, as Charlie would say, it was keeping us out of bars. I mean, you know, that, that, that uh, gave us something to do, uh, and it, and it. We never do anything that we don't think adds to the value of Berkshire Hathaway, though. So we only repurchase the shares when that is the most attractive thing to do. We haven't repurchased any shares at all in April. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's people who were looking for all these uh, prints in the, you know, foot, footprints in the woods and all that is what we're doing. We're just doing it day by day as it comes along. And I think. This table kind of illustrates that, that we spent $40 billion in a hurry there between three weeks, and, and uh, now we're back somewhat in our more lethargic uh, mood. But that, anything can change at Berkshire. But the one thing that won't change, going back to Q2, if you'll, uh, is we will always have a lot of cash on hand. And when I say cash, I don't mean commercial paper 
when 2008 and 2009 financial panic came along, we didn't own anybody's commercial paper. Yeah, we didn't have money market funds. We didn't. We have treasury bills. And uh, as I may get into a little later, I'll explain to you why. Uh, we would, we believe in having cash. And uh, uh, there have been a few times in history and will be more times in history where, where if you don't have it, you know, you don't get to play the next day. I mean, it, uh, uh, it's just, uh, uh, it's like oxygen, you know. It's there all the time, but if it disappears for a few minutes, it's all over. So we, our cash was down on March 31st because as you saw, we spent that large sum uh, there in that brief period during the quarter, 40 billion. Uh, we've committed to buy Allegheny Corp. Uh, something over 11 billion, and, uh, but we will always have a lot of cash. We won't, we don't, some of our companies have bank, bank lines. I don't know why they have the bank lines. We're better than the banks and we, we'll give them the money if they need it. But, but you know, the local bankers have been calling on them and they, uh, they need something to do. Everybody else has bank lines, so uh, it, it's harmless. Uh, but our, there's no reason for any of our subsidiaries uh, to have bank lines. Berkshire is stronger than the banks that they're. Uh, I didn't hear exactly what you, I don't know whether that was a, a banker screaming or. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't really like to torture, I don't like to torture anybody. I mean, <laughs> but, but uh, and I'm all for banks and we'll talk about that a little later. In fact, uh, we might we might even talk about it right now, just for a minute. It, uh, money's kind of an interesting thing. It, uh, people seem to like to talk to me about it. I mean, they don't they don't ask me how to dance or anything like that, but they do they ask about money. And so, uh, if we'll put up uh, 20-1. Uh, it's a um, it's a photo of a twenty dollar bill, and it says at the top Federal Reserve notes. Now Federal Reserve note. We we've done all kinds of things with money in this country. It's amazing. Country only a couple hundred years old. The number of different experiments we've made with banks and everything. But we finally just decided to put, let the Federal Reserve do the issuing of money. And uh, uh, the, uh, down in the lower left-hand corner, incidentally, I think Rosie Rios, uh, who signed this note, I think she signed more, more uh, US currency than, than uh, any other person in history. Uh, so if you see Rosie, you know, you cozy up to her. I mean, this is a woman that has issued a lot of currency. Uh, uh, it says, it says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And that makes it money. You, you can go in, go into our candy store, and if you offer us enough bushels of wheat, we'll probably give you a box of candy. But, but money is the only thing that, 
the IRS is going to take from you. That, uh, you, can, you can offer them all kinds of, uh, you can offer them paintings, you can offer them all, whatever, but this is what settles debts in the United States. And I thought that you'll hear a lot about various kinds of money. This is the only kind of money uh, you're going to see, uh, in my opinion, uh, throughout your lifetime or even throughout Charlie's lifetime. I mean, it, it, this is, uh, 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 it's very interesting because it, it just says that uh, settle all legal tender for all that's public and private and nothing else says that, except I thought you might be interested in seeing uh, another $20 bill, and this one I own. Uh, uh, and on that, it's got the same guy's picture, Andrew Jackson and uh, everything. Uh, and that's a $20 bill. And that $20 bill was issued during my lifetime and it was done by a bank that Berkshire ended up owning. So you'll see the Illinois National Bank in Buster Rockford. And uh, uh, we bought that bank back in 1969. And if you look down in the bottom of that one, it's signed by a fellow named Eugene Abeg. And we bought it from Eugene Abeg. So we, uh, we still have some $20 bills they came in sheets, and we can cut them out like paper dolls. And there are money. Uh, the Illinois National Bank issued money. But just remember, the United States government, in effect, said that this became exchangeable for lawful money of the United States. That, that's what money is. It may turn out that it becomes worth dramatically less in purchasing power. Uh, it can become almost like paper money as it has in many countries. But that is all. When people tell you that they're issuing new forms of money, uh, this is the only thing that will pay bills uh, under some circumstances. And there were, there were days, a few days in 2008, and we came very close to having a repeat in March 2020. And uh, uh, we had plenty of money on March 20th. Uh, but we were not very, very far away from having something that might have been a repeat of 2008 or even worse. And we have a bookstore here, uh, but the bookworm that's in the other room, and they've got a book uh, called Trillion Dollar Triage. And for those of you who actually like to read about this sort of thing, it's a marvelous account of what took place day by day uh, with the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. And believe me, uh, the Federal Reserve hadn't done what they did, at least in my view, uh, in a very, very, very short period of time, uh, uh, things could have stopped. Uh, in, in, uh, uh, and I, 
tipped my hat a couple years ago to Jay Ball for acting as he did. You have to act with speed. I mean, you, it, uh, in the old days when you had runs on banks, uh, back in the 19th century, you know, a line formed, you know, and the bank would go broke. But the fellow would pay out as slowly as possible, you know, hoping something would happen. A Wells Fargo truck or stagecoach would pull up with a bunch of gold or something, and you'd sweet talk the people into the line dispersing. Uh, in Omaha, in August of 1931, uh, four state banks, so-called state banks, they had a vote in that day, they closed, and the national banks didn't. But they were all broke as of that day. If, if they, they, no bank can pay off in one day all of its liabilities. But the Federal Reserve is the only one that's good at that time. But I will say, tell you this, Berkshire Hathaway will be there <laughs> at that time. We, we run it on the basis that if, uh, if uh, things just behave slightly, very, if, if, if Hank Paulson, George H.W. Bush, or no, George W. Bush, I'm sorry, and uh, uh, Ben Bernanke and a few people hadn't taken action. We were at that point where the line was formed, except it comes in electronic fund and they push buttons and, and uh, it's all over uh, very fast uh, if there's a run on a bank. Remember, if you ever buy a bank and there's two banks in town, hire a few extras and have them go over and start standing in line at the other guy's bank. I mean, it, uh, uh, <laughs> and there's only one problem with that. After a while, somebody will stand in front of your bank, you know, and then both of you are gone. Uh, but the Federal Reserve is not gone. And the Federal Reserve in the United States can do whatever is necessary. They've got all kinds of rules about can do this or that and this and that. And, and, uh, uh, and one time in the 1980s, Paul Volcker, who was a very honest man, said to me, and I said, you know, what are the limits of, of, of what you can do? And he said, hmm. he, he was a very unusual guy and huge, looked out at me and said, we can do whatever we need to do. <laughs> and, and that's true, and that's what, that's what happened in 2008 and 9, and that's what happened in 2000. Uh, 20, and you hope it happens again next time, but you want to be, we want Berkshire Hathaway to, to be there and uh, uh, in a position to operate when, the, uh, if, if the economy stops. And that can always happen. That can always happen. Some of those cheery words. Um, <laughs> uh, Let's see if we, uh, I think, I think we can actually, might be a good idea to start with some questions as I said, we will have the questions alternate between uh, CNBC, Becky Quick, and those are questions that have come in from shareholders and they can be directed to 
any of the four of us up here, and, uh, and then we will go alternate and go around the room here, and we've got, we've got the auditorium broken into 10 or 11 uh, uh, sections. Uh, Charlie and I one time figured out, out a uh, form and uh, said officers of the company broken down by age, and we, we just put all of us uh, as an answer to that question. But, the, uh, but we'll have it broken down by categories around here, and uh, uh, we'll keep alternating, and uh, we will uh, break for lunch at at, uh, at noon and reconvene at one. So let's start off and, uh, Becky, will you lead the way? Uh, thanks, Warren. The first question comes from Jack Sisoleski, and he says in the annual letter that you wrote in February 26, you mentioned that Charlie and you saw little that excites us in the market, yet around March 10th, the deal for Allegheny was announced, and then later the Occidental announcement, then did the disclosure of the HP investment. His question is, what changed from the time you dated the letter to the time the investments were announced? Did the name suddenly become interesting in the space of a month and a half? No. Or half a month? Well, Charlie, you want to give your version? I'll give my version. Well, my version would be we found some things we prefer to owning to, tre to treasury bills. <laughs> yeah. And as usual, Charlie's given the total answer, but I'll talk longer and say less. <laughs> Uh, we, uh, uh, actually the, uh, the letters dated February 26th where we were confessing our inability to find anything, uh, which was a Saturday, but the day before that, uh, February 25th, I got a, um, email, uh, actually uh, my assistant, uh, uh, Debbie Bosani gets it because I can't figure out quite how to handle the machinery, but so she, she, she brought it in and, uh, or actually she puts a bunch on the edge of her desk and then I collect them occasionally. And, uh, there was a, a note, uh, just a few lines long from a fellow that, uh, was a friend of mine and, and that worked for Berkshire within many years ago. And this was on February 25th, the day before the thing. And he said uh, uh, he had now become CEO of Allegheny Corp. I'd been following Allegheny Corp for 60 years. I, I, you know, I, I read their annual reports. I had four big file drawers full of it because it was an interesting company. And all companies interested me. Uh, uh, so. I, I knew a, I knew a lot about it, like any corporal. <laughs> and uh, uh, Joe said, you know, this is my first annual report as CEO, and, and uh, I just wanted to send it along to you, just like you write for your sisters. He says, I write this, I write this report as if I'm writing to you. And uh, I sent a note back to Joe, and I said, you know, I'm going to read it. Uh, over the weekend or whatever I said to him on it, which was true. I mean, I look forward to reading it. 
And I said, by the way, I'm going to be in New York on, on um, March 7th, and, and uh, um, you know, can, can we get together? Uh, I'd like to see you. And I've got, I think I may have said I got an idea. Well, I didn't have that idea the day before. I mean, it just, this, this thing happened to come in on Friday the 26th, and, and I, I knew I'd buy Allegheny at a price. And, and if he hadn't sent me the note, it never would have occurred to me to write him and say, why don't we get together on, on, on March 7th or anything of the sort. It, would, it just wouldn't have happened, except for the fact that Joe uh, wanted to send me along this annual report that he'd just written. So that's, that's the orderly and uh, decision-making progress. I didn't call up investment bankers and say, you know, will you prepare me a report on this and, you know, what's your advice and all this stuff. I knew we'd buy Allegheny at, at the price we offered, and if it was of interest to Allegheny, fine, if it wasn't. But otherwise, if that email hadn't been sent, we, we would not have made an offer for Allegheny. So uh, that, uh, give credit to the fact that Joe uh, had written the annual report, and if he'd sent it a week earlier, uh, well, I, was, I, you know, I wasn't going to make a special trip to New York, but I wanted to sit down with him and, and tell him what Berkshire would do. But that explains the $11 billion. <laughs> and uh, uh, what happened was that uh, a few stocks got very interesting to us, and we also spent a lot of money. At, uh, what happened, the market, and this is really important to understand, in, in the last couple of years, the stock market is probably, it's always been a combination of a casino and a, uh, and when I talk about Wall Street, I'm talking about the whole capital formation market. Uh, but the, and, and trading market, et cetera. But the market has been extraordinary. It, it, sometimes it's, it's quite investment oriented, kind of like it always you've read about in the books and everything. Uh, what what capital markets are supposed to do, and you study it in school and all that. And other times, it's 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 almost totally uh, a casino, and uh, it's a gambling parlor. And that existed to an extraordinary degree uh, in the last couple of years, encouraged by Wall Street because the money is in the money is turn, is in turning over stocks. I mean, people say how wonderful you've done if you bought Berkshire and. Uh, in you know, 1965 or something and, and held it. But your broker would have starved to death. I mean, it, 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 it's, Wall Street makes money on, on one way or another, catching the crumbs that fall off a table of capitalism and, 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 and an incredible economy that, that you know, nobody could have ever dreamed of a couple hundred years ago. But that, they don't make money unless people do things <laughs> and that they get a piece of them. Uh, and it's, it's uh, uh, and they make a lot more money when people are gambling than when they're investing. I mean, it, uh, it's much better to have somebody that's going to trade 20 times a day and get all excited about it, just like paying, pulling the handle on the slot machine. You know, that's who you, 
You may not say that you'd want that person. You'd like the other kind of person too, maybe, but that's where you make the money. And the degree to which the market got dominated by that is, is shown on a, on a slide some, I have here somewhere. Uh, yeah, here's on Oxy One. If you'll put up the Oxy One, that shows how we bought what became. Well, we bought in two weeks, uh, thereabouts, 14% of Occidental Petroleum. And you'll say, well, how can you buy 14% of a company in two weeks? And it's more extreme than that. Because if you look at the Occidental Proxy, you'll see that the standard names, BlackRock, index funds, uh, State Street index funds, basically, Vanguard index funds, and then one other firm, Dodge and Cox. If you take those four entities, and they're, they're not, they're not going to buy and sell stock. They may have got their own little rules. So they, they own 40% of the company, roughly, those four firms. And they didn't do anything during this period. So now you're down to 60% of the Occidental Petroleum Company that's even available. So well, Occidental's been around for years and years and years. Big company and all kinds of things. And with 60% of the stock outstanding, uh, I go in and tell Mark Millard, this fellow that is um, 30 feet away from me or so, and I say in the morning to him, you know, buy 20% and take blocks or whatever it may be. And in two weeks, he buys 14% out of 14, 60%. That's not investment. I mean, <laughs> you're not buying from investment. I find it just incredible. You wouldn't be able to do that with Berkshire. I mean, you can't literally buy You can say you want to buy 14% of the company. It's going to take you a long, long time. But overwhelmingly, large companies in America, uh, well, all of them, they became, they became poker chips. And people were buying and selling like three-day calls or two-day calls. And, and the, the more people, times people pull the handle on the machine, the more money the machine makes. I mean, it's, it's very clear. Uh, and overwhelmingly, I mean, where did, where did people go? The investors just were sitting around and there weren't very many and the money was being made essentially by a bunch of people gambling on things and that enabled us in a two-week period to buy 14% of a, of a business that's been around for decades. And you try and imagine trying to buy 14% of the farms in two weeks in this country, or 14% of the apartment houses, or 14% of the auto dealerships, or just anything, uh, when already 40% were locked up some other place. It, 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 is, it, it defies anything that Charlie and I have seen, and we've seen a lot, uh, but I've never seen that percentage 
of the American public. Essentially, it was a gambling parlor, and, and the people that were making money were people that worked with gamblers. <laughs> and then it declined very significantly uh, a few weeks ago. You can, you can feel it if you're, if you're, uh, uh, if you're around it. Uh, so uh, when somebody asks a very good question is, why weren't you doing anything on February 20th, and why were you doing it on uh, starting, well, in the case of Occidental, on February 28th? Uh, uh, you know, it, it's because things developed in a way, and in the case of Occidental specifically, uh, they'd had a uh, an analyst uh, presentation of some, uh, I don't know whether it was a quarterly one or what it was exactly, but I read it over a weekend, and that was the weekend when the annual report came out. I read it over a weekend, and what Vicki Hollop was saying made nothing but sense, and I decided that, that it was a good place to put Berkshire's money, and then I found out in the ensuing two weeks it was there in black and white. There was nothing mysterious about it. But, but Vicky was, was saying what uh, the company had gone through and where it was now and what they were doing with the money. And she, she'll do what she says. She doesn't know the price of oil next year. Nobody does. But um, we decided it made sense. And, and two weeks later, we had 14% of the, of the company. And, and uh, we... Uh, also already had a preferred stock and warrants. Uh, and the story of the preferred stock is we paid 10 billion, uh, preferred stock and warrants, we paid 10 billion for it. And at the end of the March quarter of 2020, we valued that 10 billion uh, for our 10Q. We valued it at five and a half billion. So we had a four and a half billion loss <coughs> and it would have, uh, yeah, the world changed. Oil sold for minus $37 a barrel <laughs> one day, and uh, uh, now it's quite apparent, I think, that, uh, that uh, we want, we're very happy, we should be very happy that we can produce uh, 11 million barrels a day or something of the sort in the United States rather than being able to produce none and having to find 11 million barrels a day somewhere else in the world to take care of keeping the American industrial machine working. Charlie, have you got any comments on that as to how, how something this crazy could have happened? Well, it happened. It's almost a mania of speculation that we now have. We have computers with algorithms trading against other computers we got people who know nothing about stocks being advised by stockbrokers who know even less. <laughs> they understand the commissions. Yeah, it's just, it's just an incredible, crazy situation. And it's weird that we ever got a system where all this 
equivalent of casino activity is all mixed up with a lot of legitimate long-term investment. I don't think any wise country would have wanted this outcome. Why would you want your country's stocks to trade on a casino basis to people who are just like the people who play craps and roulette in the casino? I think it's crazy, but it happened, and it's respectable. Not with me, but with other people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and look at look at what the country. I mean, they formed the New York Stock Exchange in 1792 under a buttonwood tree, and it really didn't seem like that was the eureka moment in America. But just look at what's happened using the system uh, for less than you know. Well. You know, three of my lifetimes. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So, it it's worked. Now, maybe it's worked in spite of itself. Maybe, maybe with the country. But one way or another, America has worked in an incredible manner. Nobody could have dreamt it. Nobody. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd have hauled you away if you said, you know, in three lifetimes, you know that that uh, you know. This place where we're meeting. I mean, it, uh, uh, it became a state in 1867, but 17, in 1789, it asked Ben Franklin or somebody that was walking out of the Constitutional Convention, you know, is it, what do you think the prospects are for Nebraska? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's unbelievable what's been accomplished, and it's been accomplished. Uh, the people who encourage the gambling, they would like to say it's been accomplished because of the, of uh, we've got these liquid markets and all these wonderful things. Charlie would probably say it's in spite of that, who knows? <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the, the answer is that, uh, uh, well, there isn't an answer. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, my wife, when they got married, April 19th, 1952, we got in my aunt's car and we started driving west and we ended up, we drove all over the west, but one night we ended up in Las Vegas. And uh, there were three fellows out there. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Barrick and Sam Zygman and Jackie Gawn. And all three of these guys were from Omaha and they'd bought little pieces of the flamingo. Bugsy Signal had his career ended rather abruptly uh, a few years earlier. Bad bullet. By, it was a stray bullet, undoubtedly. That, uh, uh, but in fact, there were probably five or six stray bullets. But in any event, uh, Bugsy was gone, and uh, some people, including three guys from Omaha, were in the group. Sam Zygmunt lived about two blocks from where I live now, and he was Stan Lipsy's uncle. Stan Lipsy ran, those of you who follow Berkshire, ran the Buffalo News and was a partner for 40 or 50 years later on. So all kinds of things intersect, but I walked into this casino aged, or a flamingo, it's kind of a motel-like arrangement, and I was 21, and, and my bride was 19, and I looked around the room, and uh, there were all of these people, and they were better dressed then. It was 
more dignified group than perhaps currently, but they'd flown thousands of miles in some cases, uh, you know, in, in uh, planes that weren't as fast as the current ones and were more expensive probably on a per mile basis adjusted. And they'd gone to great lengths to come out to do something that was mathematically unintelligent, and they knew it was unintelligent. And, I mean, they couldn't do it fast enough in terms of rolling the dice, you know, and trying to determine whether they were hot or whatever they may be. And I looked around at that group. Everybody there knew that they were doing something that was mathematically dumb, and they'd come thousands of miles to do it. And, they were, uh, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to get rich. I mean, how can you miss? <laughs> if people are willing to do this, you know, this is, this is a land of opportunity. Well, it's the way it still is. Uh, you know, and the Flamingo go to be much bigger, and, and, and in Omaha, we're very proud of Jackie and things he did. He only died a year, year or two away. He became sort of the, uh, the leader, a spiritual leader of Vegas, and like I say, Sam Zygmunt's uh, nephew, I went on to save my and Charlie's investment that we made in Blue Chip and the Buffalo News. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's a very accidental society that occurs, but there's nothing stranger than what has happened in finance. On the other hand, if you go back, perhaps the greatest chapter ever written on, on uh, the operation of markets, particularly the stock market, is in a book that probably one of the most famous books in economic history, the, the General Theory, written by John Maynard Keynes, I think it was 1936. And I don't know whether it's chapter, I think it's chapter 12, but whatever it is, he describes what markets are all about in 1936, and he describes something in beautiful prose. Uh, it explains why uh, the whole country in March of this year was sitting around uh, trading Occidental in some crazy way that enabled us to buy a quarter of what wasn't owned by uh, four other institutions that weren't going to sell. We were able to buy a quarter of it, and we could have bought a lot more. I mean, it was... It, 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 you just wondered if there was anybody that really was thinking about investment. If you, going back to investing, I mean, investing is laying out money now with the hope of getting back more later on. It's really laying out purchasing power now with the hope of getting more purchasing power back. But that's the reason you, and you know, that's the way you learn in the textbooks, that you defer consumption now so you can consume more later on so they can take care of your family. All these things about how investment takes place. And that is what happens with farms. I mean, I admit, uh, uh, somebody buys a farm and they generally they hope to leave it to their kids or they got it from their parents. And I mean, they don't sit there every day and you know, get quotes 15 times a day and say, you know, I'd like to get a call. I'd like to sell a put you know, on, on the farm next to me and you can have a call on mine and then I'll have something called a straddle or a strangle or whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, they just, they, they, they go about making the farm worth more money and 
And they do the same thing if they got an auto dealership and they do the same thing, you know, if they've, if they've got an apartment house, they look for, for improvement and track tenants, all those kind of things. And um, 40, what would it be, 40 trillion at least, you know, of, of the ownership of all of the American business people and trade his poker chips or pulling the handle and and they've got they've got systems set up so that if you want to buy a three day call on a stock, you can you can do it. And they make more money selling you calls than if you buy stocks. So they teach you about calls. <laughs> Nobody's going around selling calls on farms or anything of the sort. Uh, but that's that's why markets do crazy things, and occasionally uh, Berkshire uh, gets a chance to do something. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not because we're smart. It, it, it's because we're, the only thing I'd say we're, we qualify on, and sometimes I wonder about that, but I think we're sane. You know, I mean, that, and, and that's the main, main requirement in this business. And, and anybody? Well, I don't think we've ever had anything quite like what we have now in terms of the volumes of pure gambling activity that go on daily and the people lathering the gamblers up so they can rook them. And it's not pretty. And I don't find it creates any great glory for capitalism or anything anymore than a bunch of people throwing dice at a table. What good does that do the rest of the world? It's a great way to become rich, though. Just figure out ways to insert yourself into the system somehow. And, uh, you know, it, jobs to some extent self-select. And many years ago, and, and I've got all kinds of friends in Wall Street, not as many as I had before I had started talking this way an hour or so ago, but I, but I really do. I, I mean, I, I, people make... They make lots of decisions in life, and the truth is that overall, the American system has worked extremely well. It's, it's, it may be very unfair in many ways, but it has produced incredible difference in the goods and services available to me versus what my grandfather had available. You know, I do not want to go back to pre-air conditioning and and people pouring whiskey down me while the, while they drill my teeth or something of the sort. Or any, I mean, this, this is a lot better world. And, and uh, we... Well, I think we've made more be, because of the crazy gambling. I think it's made it easier for us, net, over the decades we've been operating. Well, I mean, we've depended on it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we depend on mispriced businesses through mechanism where we're not responsible for the mispricing of them. And overall, we, we learned something a long time ago that doesn't, doesn't take a high IQ, doesn't take anything. It just takes the right attitude. We may talk more about that later, but I think we ought to prove that we've got an audience here by going to section one. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, my name is Ole Pollem. I live in Hanover, Germany. Uh, this is my first time in Omaha. Um, my question is on Berkshire buying entire companies outside the U.S. 
Um, there were a few. Iska, probably the first one. Uh, Louis in Germany. Um, my question is, uh, would you only answer calls from them if you're interested in, or would you proactively uh, approach them if they would like to sell their company? Uh, I would, we actually made a few trips. I think I made, maybe Charlie went there on one of them. We, we tried to stir up interest and in all that sort of thing in Berkshire, around the world, we probably did that 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, uh, during that period that I showed you that burst of action we had, we probably spent, uh, we probably, we probably spent at least five billion of that. Uh, yeah, it'd be pretty, in the area of five billion of it, we bought uh, three German securities. We bought two. Uh, well, we bought we bought one Japan. We we rounded up on some some of the holdings we already had there. Uh, we would we would love them to buy it, but we they don't think of us as quickly there. I mean, I don't have somebody that's going to send me an email. Uh, about a company that I've been following for 60 years, and and I know I can see him in New York, and you know I can name a number to him, and if he likes, he can take it to his board, and so on. And uh, uh, it just doesn't happen that way. We haven't had that experience in, in in well anywhere outside the United States. Now you can say with 40 trillion here, you know. We should be able to find something here a little closer to home. Uh, but we don't have any bias against New England. We, there's, there's, uh, there are companies, you know, we'd buy in 10 minutes if we had somebody on the other end that could do business in 10 minutes. It's, it's much more complicated in certain countries than in the United States uh, to purchase businesses. And uh, uh, there's certain rules, but obviously this, you know, we got a call, whenever it was, many years ago, on the uh, on 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 our, our uh, company in Germany, and and actually the two two fellows that run it are probably here in the audience. I saw them yesterday, and they're marvelous, and they run the business, and and uh, you know uh, they they they're just trustworthy as. All well, the pictures were up on the on the, on the movie we showed uh, 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 before the meeting started here. Uh, you know, we 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 have so much trouble finding good ideas that we can't afford to ignore any. But they do have to be sizable now. I mean, there there really isn't there, there isn't a lot a lot of I love the. I love the operation we bought in Germany, and it, it's just a pleasure to be associated with the with with the people there. I just wish we could add another zero to all the figures, and it was a much larger deal. It's not going to have an economic impact on Berkshire, but they love it, they care. You can see it, you can feel it, and that's the kind of business we'd like to have, and, and we're very happy we've got it in Berkshire, but we can't do it one debt of 
Louis at the time, uh, uh, and we would never, never sell an operation like that, ever. Uh, uh, I'm looking at you, Greg. Uh, the, <laughs> the, but if we get a call tomorrow, uh, and we could make a deal that involves 10 or 20 billion dollars, it was in Germany or France or Britain or Japan or name a whole global country, we'd, we'd do it. We bought the interest in the five leading trading companies in Japan uh, uh, a couple years ago, and, and I rounded them up a little bit, but I told them originally we weren't going to buy a lot with, we weren't going to change our positions materially without their okay. So we actually, I think, rounded to 5.85% based on the latest figures we had then of all five of them, and that put a good many hundreds of millions or maybe a billion or two to work. Uh, uh, so we will, well, President Kennedy said, well, pay any price, climb any hills, you know, whatever it may be to, to find businesses, but we actually prefer it when they fall into our lap, like getting a letter from somebody and, and uh, you hadn't heard from them for a couple of years and, and you know what you pay for the business and, and you know if the if the board of directors of that company regards it as attractive, that they'll be happy to buy it, and they know you're going to show up at the closing, and that you're not going to pile debt on it or change things or anything. They've got an answer, uh, and then you have to see if they've got the, the question in their mind: is is uh, what's the best thing for uh, for Allegheny Corp? And in that case. We had $11 billion less at the end of the day or at the end of the dinner uh, than we had at the start of the day. So it, opportunity can be any place. And we do have a terrific operation, for example, in, in Israel. I mean, just terrific. And, and, it, uh, and it's, reason, it's, it's pretty good size. Uh, uh, would we like to have another one like it? Yeah, I just don't know where the other one is. Charlie? Well, but think in the scheme of things, imagine buying in $60 billion worth of our own stock. We like the businesses. We like the price we're paying. No overhead, no cost, no, no nothing. Just, just more interest in what we already own. Isn't that we're totally wasting our time? Yeah, and if you look at it, there are... You can read hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of words written on stock repurchases and what this is and what that is and all this kind of thing. It's not very complicated. I mean, if you had a partner in a lemonade stand and they wanted to sell out, sell their interest, or two partners and one wanted to sell their interest, I mean, and, and the business had the money to buy it, our little lemonade stand, and, and they were offering it a price that was good for the other two people are going to remain, you'd buy, them, you'd buy it. Now, the thing that's fascinating to me is what you can accomplish, and still, people don't pay any attention to it. We owned, in 1998, you know, this is more than 20 years ago, uh, 
we owned uh, about 150 million. I don't know whether they've split, whatever it is, if, it's, if they've split it, split adjusted, but we owned 150 million shares of American Express. Uh, I think we bought our last share in 1998 or something like that. Oh, and we then owned 11.2% of the American Express Company, wonderful company. And since then, they've sent us a check every quarter as a dividend. And so we've taken some cash a little bit as they've gone along. And now we own 20% of American Express. And that's what's happened because they've repurchased shares. That happens to have worked out extremely well. If they overpaid for the stock and all that, it doesn't solve every problem, but it's a wonderful thing if you've got an asset you like and they take your ownership interest up. And like I say, we've gone from 11.2% to 20%. If you're using your American Express card or whatever it may be, 20% of whatever earnings attributable to our interest, and they used to be 11.2%, and we've done it without putting up any money. Now, imagine, imagine if you owned a farm, and you had 640 acres, and you farmed it every year, and you made a little money on it, and enjoyed farming, and somehow, 20 or so years later, it had turned into 1,100 or 1,200 acres. I mean, you'd say, you know, how long has this been going on? You know, why, what could possibly be, you know, is this un-American or whatever it may be? I mean, is it, you know, sensible use to meet its cost of capital, blah, 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 blah. And that, uh, if you do it at the right price, there's nothing better than buying in your own business. We own, I mentioned use Apple as an example, uh, of how our interest in Apple, you know, every time a company that earns 100 billion a year, you know, it means that our interest in it goes up a tenth of a percent. You know, we've added another 100 million to earnings. Well, that—I mean, it takes a lot of work to add a lot of 100 million to earnings. And uh, you know, in the first quarter, of the, they just reported. Uh, they're on a fiscal year, but they just reported their March quarter, and you know they earned more money, and they had fewer shares outstanding. And we actually bought a little more Apple uh, in the first quarter, so we decided we wanted to own a greater interest. And on top of that, we knew that we would own an even greater interest if uh, uh, they kept buying in their shares, which we didn't have any insider information or anything, but certainly would seem the way to bet. And, uh, you know, we feel better because we bought the shares we bought in the market and we feel just, just as good as the fact, by the fact they use their cash to buy out some of the other people. It, it is the simplest thing in the world. And then I read all this stuff. It, it, it is unbelievable uh, how people can't figure out something that, you know, if they owned a farm and the guy next to him had a farm and somehow you were getting more of his farm all the time without putting up any money while you farmed your own farm, that at least, if, you know, you're using some of the earnings for that, 
you'd feel very good about it. But, uh, have you got any explanation for it, Charlie? Well, I have another thing that interests me in the presidency. We get all these suggestions from index funds, a letter saying we, the chairman and the president of the chief executive officer are the same person, and that they have some professor somewhere that thinks that American business would work better if it had a separate, if Warren could split, could split him in two and have each half work. And to me, it's the most ridiculous criticism I've ever heard. It like, it would like, well, Odessus would come back from winning the battle in Troy and so forth, and some guy was saying, I don't like the way you were holding your spear when you won that battle. <laughs> It's some guy that's never run any business and doesn't know anything. <laughs> I don't think too much of this activity. <laughs> well, let's see. Somewhere in here. Somebody find it at some point. Oh, here it is. Uh, we wrote... We wrote in the annual report that in the third paragraph of a nine-page report, we said, we're going to treat everybody the same. Um, Maybe a crazy concept we have, but, but we really feel that somebody that gave us our, their savings in 1960 or 1970 or 1980 and just left them with us and trusted us, we feel that they're entitled to the same sort of respect and attention that uh, somebody that you know, is accumulating like crazy assets under management gets paid based on assets under management that, that knows that they just need to have policies that essentially are popular in Washington. The only, problem, the only threat they have really is that Washington sometimes says that you're getting too damn big and we're going to do something about you. So they, they try to be very sure that they're doing things that people will share. So anyway, I say, well, we're going to treat you all alike. We've got three million people or shareholders out there. We're going to treat you all alike. And uh, on March 25th, uh, about a month after I wrote that letter, it's in the third paragraph. I, you'd think that they would get that far. That they, 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 they had uh, 101 million B shares. I mean, you know, somebody ought to read to the third paragraph. But anyway, we got a letter and says, we would like to meet with you in advance of Berkshire Hathaway's 2022 annual meeting of shareholders to discuss Berkshire Hathaway's perspective uh, on governance and sustainability. Well, A, I've written probably more on that that's been honestly written from, by the guy who runs the company, but why in hell would they think that we should meet with them and not you people all individually that come here? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I grew up in a very, very, very Republican household, but I, I feel like a, you know, some raving populist or something, but I, I, I just can't imagine. Uh, well, anyway, you've heard it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I, somebody, somebody gets paid to, to uh, well, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, in 
public relations and they hire advisors and advi because it looks better if they have advisors that tell them whether the chairman and the CEO should be the same person or not and those people get paid for it. And then they discuss it at their board meeting and then, you know, in the end, believe me, if, if 90% of Congress for some reason felt it was better to have the chairman and the CEO be the same person, the index funds would not be writing those letters because all I have to worry about is whether, for some reason, people start wondering why some, some institution should have 10% of the votes in, in every major corporation in the country. And I like the idea of index funds, I, I, but it is interesting to watch where incentives and bureaucracy and whatever it may be lead people. The guy that wrote me the letter is probably a very nice guy. I haven't, but you know, that's his job. And uh, uh, well, anyway, they didn't get a special meeting. And you people are here and I, we appreciate the fact you're here. <laughs> okay, back to Becky. Uh, this question is for Ajit and Greg. It comes from Ben Nall, who's a shareholder of 30 years. He's a Nebraska native, and he says he'll be attending the meeting here today. Um, BNSF and GEICO appear to be losing ground to their two primary competitors, Union Pacific and Progressive. Over the past several years, UP's operating ratio has been about 400 basis points better than BNSF's, and Progressive has grown faster while maintaining a lower combined ratio than GEICO. On an operating basis, UP's precision scheduled railroading and Progressive's telematics appear to have jumped ahead of the Berkshire businesses. He wants to know what Greg and Ajit are doing to address those business challenges. Thank you, Becky. Let me just start by saying when we think of BNSF, we have an exceptional franchise there and a great business. And we do compete with other railways, and we're very well aware of how they operate, including their operating ratios and, and the metrics they operate to and, and precision railroading, and it's all part of it. But what I, would share, what I would share with is when I think of BNSF, we start with focusing on our customer, understanding how we can best service them, and yes, we want to do it in an efficient, effective way that delivers great results back to our, our shareholders. And, and that will continue to be our focus. So yes, we learn from all the uh, metrics they report and how they operate their, their rail and we observe it, but I would put our team up right beside them on, on any operating day and we're gonna, we're gonna move our, our, our rail cars as, as well as any other rail company in America and we're gonna do it on behalf of our customers. So we're, we're very proud, but we're not ignoring the fact that there's more to be done both operationally and, and for our customers. So we'll continue to see improvement there. We've got a great leadership team there. We've got a great employee group within BNSF. And what I like is we're just gonna see long-term improvement there. We have a, an exceptional intermodal franchise out of the West. It's, it's incredibly valuable to our shareholders long-term, our partners. And that's what our team is focused on, building that franchise out. So couldn't be more proud of where we're at, but we also know we have a, a journey ahead of us and we're gonna continue to get better and better. Greg, if we were ever the opportunity, would you trade our operation for theirs? Never, never. And we love he our- He knows a lot about it, Phil. 
we have a great we have a great franchise and we have a great leadership team running it. So, well said, Charlie. Thank you. And I, I just I just want to go to Gene and Greg. You know, was a major partner uh, for twenty years, uh, more or less, since a little over that since we we bought the energy company and and and. Uh, uh, his boss uh, was Dave Sokol, and and the two of them. I mean, they know how to run. They knew how to run businesses. I mean, and they, you know, it isn't like we don't we we don't read what other numbers are and all that. But we 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 uh, we got the perfect person running and Katie Farmer. We've got the perfect person running uh, the NSF. And you know, she'll do a great job and it, it changing around a railroad in various ways. You know, if you got 20, 20 uh, uh, 1,000 or something miles of own track and, yep. and all kinds of other, it doesn't count sightings, double tracking. And you've got a lot of things to do from something that they started building uh, a couple hundred years ago. And, and you, not quite a couple hundred, but... And you can't, you can't move things around very easily. And towns grew. Yeah, you know, when you came into Omaha in 1862, well, the railroad didn't even go across the river. I mean, it, um, even though we'd become the, a major rail center for, for the West or the opening to the West, and uh, it, we're going to be here 100 years from now. We will be an important, a really vital asset of the country and it will be a very big part, very important part of Berkshire and uh, we will take what is an incredible assemblage, I think of 300 and some railroads or something I get over time and, uh, right. and, and, and uh, you know, uh, the charts got laid and the routes laid out, you know, 150 years ago, the world changes, but you have, we have to adapt to it, but you don't do it. You don't put an order out to change a thousand miles of how it's operated or anything of the sort. So we're running it to have that asset for Berkshire shareholders, and it, and it will redundant to the down to the to the, um, the benefit of the the country. And if we do it, well, it'll no matter who ran it would be important. Obviously, enormously, the country and. The UP will be here and, 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 uh, at that time, too, and, and, and uh, uh, it'll be a better railroad 100 years from now than it is now. But I can't promise you what will happen if, 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 if we get flooding and something in the next few months. You know, it, it, can, it, can, uh, it can wipe out a lot of the plans you have and disrupt lots of lives and, and disrupt lots of shipments. and. Uh, there's, there, there are no magic wands in, in railroading to make great, great changes. On the other hand, you ought to be working at it every day to make it better. So, I forget how many bridges we have, but uh, uh, some years ago, we were spending three or four billion dollars a year on, on capital expenditures. And one, and I said, Matt Rose, you know, I said, this is, a, this is a lot of money to spend, you know, keeping up a railroad, and then. Uh, he said, well, we're going to have to do that more and so on. And I said, well, 
I said, I can handle this, but I'm not sure Charlie can. I mean, <laughs> I have to explain these numbers to him. So the next bridge they, bought, uh, they built, they called the Charles T. Munger Bridge. So you can actually go see. <laughs> Our railroad has the Charles T. Munger Bridge because uh, Charlie, Charlie kind of was asking similar questions <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, Ajit? Okay. Thank you, Becky. Um, there's no question that the personal automobile insurance business is a very competitive business. Having said that, both Geico and Progressive are two very successful competitors uh, in this segment. Each one of them have their pluses and minuses. But having said that, there's no question that more recently, Progressive has done a much better job than Geico, as you point out, both in terms of margins and in terms of growth rates. There are a number of causes for that, but I think the biggest culprit as far as Geico is concerned and again, you rightly pointed out, is telematics. Progressive has been on the telematics bandwagon for, I don't know, more than 10 years, probably closer to 20 years. Geico, until recently, wasn't involved in telematics, and it's been only the last two years that they've made a very serious effort in terms of making, using telematics for segmentation and for trying to match rate and risk. Uh, it's a long journey, but the journey has started, and the initial results are promising. Uh, it'll take a while, but my hope and expectation is that hopefully in the next year or two, Geico will be in a position to catch up with Progressive in terms of tel telematics, and hopefully that will then translate into both growth rate and margins. Charlie, guys. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, it, it, the auto insurance industry is is a fascinating one to study. That in, in that that the largest auto insurance company now, and <coughs> we're talking 2022 and. Uh, you know, Henry Ford. I mean, it was 1903, you know, or something when when cars really got started, and it wasn't too many years after that that he was turning out two million cars a year. Imagine that, you know, one guy that uh, two million cars a year is a lot of cars. So car insurance uh, became very important. After hundreds of years of when people thought about insurance, it was it was it was ships at sea and and uh, fire where they had protective societies and it, it, insurance is a product's been around a long time, but auto insurance uh, has been pretty much the same thing since Leo Goodwin started Geico in in 1936, and we came along with a good idea and lots of big companies and all that. But the largest auto insurance company in the United States was started over in Illinois by a guy who didn't know anything about insurance particularly, and it's a mutual company. It's not supposed to succeed in capitalism. I mean, you know, if you go to business school, they teach you that only the 
only because you have incentives and compensation and all kinds of things, can a company succeed? Well, nobody's really gotten rich off State Farm. They, they've sat there, and they are the largest insurance company. While Leo Goodwin started 80-some years ago, and he probably wanted to get rich and probably, probably uh, uh, at, 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 at Progressive, uh, you know, people wanted to get rich and at Travelers and, and Aetna and name off dozens and dozens of companies. And who wins? You know, a mutual company. In terms of present size, they still are the largest company. They have, I believe out Berkshire, they got the largest net worth by far. I think they've got 140 billion or something like that of net worth. You know, and Progressive has had a very, very, very smart guy running it for a very long period of time. They got very smart people running it now, but but they have a net worth that's one sixth that of what some people over in Illinois that nobody knows the name of <laughs> have after years of, they've had the time to sell the same product and they advertise like crazy. We spend $2 billion a year telling people the same thing we've been telling them for 70 or 80 years, you know. The, the, the policy doesn't change, but when we get all through, State Farm's still doing more business than anybody and it, it shouldn't exist under capitalism, you know. If you went there with a plan to start a state farm today and have it compete with Progressive, you know, it, you know, who, who would put up the capital? I mean, a mutual company that you're not going to get the profits from? It, it doesn't make any sense at all, except they've got $140 billion or something like that of net worth. And Progressive, I don't know what their net worth is, but it must be somewhere around 20 or so billion. I haven't looked for a long time. Their net worth in the first, incidentally, I mean, they, they, they are very, very, very disciplined in underwriting. And of course, on the investment side, their net worth dropped in the first quarter because they, they own a lot of bonds. And they say, well, they would, probably everybody in the insurance business would say that, well, we own bonds because that's what people do. <laughs> and here's half the business where you do what people do, and the other time, other half the business. You spend all kinds of time trying to analyze in every, in every county and every, every single, every single way you can segregate and properly rate business and all of that. And uh, uh, you know, I basically, uh, Peter Lewis sat in my office 40 years, yeah, 40 years ago, and he's smart as hell. And and you know, this guy was clearly going to be the a major competitor of Berkshire's, and he, and he knew insurance backwards and forwards and, and very bright and everything, but he just ignored the investment side. And that was as important as the, as the, the underwriting side. And, and it, it is interesting how organizations function and, and uh, gonna have what I would say are to some extent blind spots and of course, Charlie and I know we've got all kinds of blind spots ourselves. I mean, so the, we have to be kind of careful of criticizing other people for having them. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is, it, it is, the, the auto insurance business ought to be studied in business school because it essentially refutes so many of the things they're presently teaching. So that's my suggestion today to business schools. Okay. <laughs> and thanks, Ajit. You couldn't.
Ajit is responsible for adding more value to Berkshire than the total net worth of Progressive. That's not to knock Progressive. I'm just saying one guy. <laughs> okay, station two. Hello, Warren and Charlie. It is great to see you both and the wonderful Berkshire managers. Our thanks for everything that you do. My name is Rajiv Agarwal, and I am from New Jersey. My question is on market timing. You have always said that it is impossible to time the markets. Yet, if we look at your track record, you have had amazing timings with some of your key decisions. You got out of the stock markets in 1969-70. You got back in 72-72-74 when the markets were really cheap. You did the same thing in 87, 99, 2000. And today, we are sitting on a significant amount of cash when the markets are going down. My question is, how do you time the big market moves so well? Uh, we'd like to offer you a job first. Uh, <laughs> I will take it. <laughs> the, uh, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, obviously, we haven't the faintest idea what the stock market is going to do when it opens on Monday. We never have had. We have never made, Charlie and I, I don't think, in all the time we've worked together, and I'll tell you something later on maybe about how learning takes place, but we have, we have never, uh, I don't think we've ever made a decision that, that where either one of us has either said or been thinking we should buy or sell based on what the market is going to do. Uh, no. Or, or for that matter, on, on what the economy is going to do. We, we don't know. And the interesting thing is, uh, some, sometimes I get some credit someplace for the fact that, you know, how wonderful it was that we were optimistic and 2008, and when everybody was down on stocks and all that sort of thing, you know, we, we, we spent a big percentage of our net worth at a very dumb time. <laughs> and and I, I shouldn't say we, it's I. We spent about 15 or $16 billion, which was a lot bigger to us then than it is now. We spent it in the last few weeks, there were a period of three or four weeks between Wrigley and Goldman Sachs, generally, we, at a terrible time, as it turned out. I mean, I, I didn't think, I didn't know it was going to be a good time or a bad time, but it was a really dumb time. And I wrote an article for the New York Times and Buy American and all these things. Well, if I'd had any sense of timing and waited six months until, I think the low was in March, and in fact, um, I think I was on CNBC maybe that day or something, but, but uh, I totally missed that opportunity. I totally missed, you know, in March of, of, of 2020, uh, we, we, we have not been good at timing. We have, we have been reasonably good at figuring out when we were getting enough for our money. And we had, no, had no idea when we bought anything, 
well, we always hoped it would go down for a while so we could buy more, and we hoped even after we were done buying and ran out of money that if it was cheap, the company would keep buying, in effect, taking our interest up. I mean, that's stuff you could, you could learn it in fourth grade, but, but it's not what's taught in school. And, I mean, it, it, so never give us any credit. Well, actually, give us all the credit. You, I mean, go out and tell everybody how smart we are, but we aren't. <laughs> they, it, we, we, we haven't ever timed anything. We've never figured out insights into the economy. I mean, when I was, when I was 11 years old, March, March 12th, I guess, 1942, yeah, at, uh, March 11th, you know, I bought stock when the Dow was 90, well, it was 101 in the morning. It was 99 at the end of the day, I think. And, uh, you know, now it's 34,000 or maybe it's a thousand less than it was on Thursday. <laughs> it, uh, but uh, I just, you know, it's one decision that it's a good thing to own American business. And, and uh, you know, if the, Harvard Endowment had come to see me, and it's 11 year old, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, or General Motors pension fund or something, and you know, they said, well, no, but we have to have a balance, and we have to maybe have 60%, of, uh, and then we have to sit around every three months and listen to a bunch of managers. They'd have just done better if they'd just taken some darts and thrown them and, and just said, we're gonna be in America. 50 years from now and 100 years from now, and we'll do better in stocks than we will in bonds. Uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing how hard people make what a simple game it is. But of course, if, if they told everybody what a simple game it was, the 90% of the income or more of, of the people that were speaking, uh, would disappear, so it's really a little too much of us to expect of human nature that people will explain why they really aren't adding any value to what you can do by yourself, or actually you're, you know, I hate to use the example, but it, you can't have monkeys throwing, throwing darts at the, at the page and, you know, take away the management fees and everything. I'll, 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 I'll bet on the monkeys, but not it. I don't consider them a superior species and I don't want them to move next door instead of my next door neighbor or anything. But that is the way, it, it's just the way it has to be. Charles, do you have anything cheerful to say? Well, frequently in the wealth advisory business, the way it used to be, you, you go to your investment advisor and you say, what should I do to protect myself for the future? And he says, why don't you give me $50,000 of your net worth now? That's my contribution to your future. <laughs> it's a peculiar business. <laughs> yeah, it's a great place to go rich. It's still, if, if you have, if, you're, if you have a, uh, uh, a son or daughter that, that uh, really wants to make money per point of IQ and per erg of energy and all of that, well, tell them to go to, go to Wall Street. I mean, 
Don't have men under the priesthood or anything. I mean, you know, if that's what they, it self-selects. And uh, it always will be the case. I mean, there's no reason to despair about humanity because they behave in their self-interest. They may not actually be behaving in their self-interest over time, but they, uh, uh, you know, are they happier? Who the hell knows? But, but if they just want to make money, but, uh, uh, well, uh, people here in the auditorium saw, saw a little session from the Solomon, uh, Solomon uh, uh, episode. And Jerry Corrigan was then the head of the New York Fed. And that same committee was grilling him. And they said, Mr. Corey, they were, they were giving him a hard time. And they said, uh, uh, who was the highest, uh, they said something to this effect, uh, who was the highest paid or uh, guy at Solomon last year? And, and, and uh, he said, well, he, uh, yeah, and he named him, and he said, um, maybe he named him. And, and he said he got, I forget what it was, 20 million last year. And we're talking 1991 now too. Said so he got 20 million, and uh, the guy says, "Well, how old is he?" And, you know, and he said, "Well, I think he's Corrigan, somebody affected. He's he's um, you know 26 or something like that." And, and then Corrigan couldn't resist saying, "And he can't even throw a football." <laughs> the, <laughs> and the truth was, you know, now there's a lot more money in throwing a football now than there used to be. But, uh, uh, you know. One of my heroes was Ted Williamson. You know, I think he was making twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars a year, and uh, you know, just imagine today, some guy that bets two thirty or two forty, you know, and if he makes it to the bigs. I mean, he's, the money flows in, and of course, uh, those people should sit down and thank the fact that that the stadium that could hold 30 or 40,000 people and was the source of revenue for the people who paid their paycheck. That stadium went from 30 to 40,000 because somebody first invented television and they came up with cable television and they came up with pay and all that sort of thing. And no, nobody knows the names of those people, but capitalism is very, very, very peculiar in how it dishes out rewards. And for a while, it was better to be in Wall Street than be it 220 or 230 hit in, in the in the bigs and uh, uh, and you know it is now reversed because uh, of the development of TV etc so it, it's a crazy world rewards seem very 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 capricious and they are and they don't seem any theologian or, or even to Charlie and me in our spare time. And the whole thing seems kind of crazy, uh, but it's worked awfully well. And even the people who don't take advantage, get shortchanged by the system are doing far, far better than if the system hadn't gotten changed. Doesn't mean that you, doesn't mean that you necessarily shouldn't work for change, but 
you should recognize the limitations of, of what you can do with humans, I'll put it that way. Okay. Charlie, is there any way you'd like to close the sermon? <laughs> well, I do think we have a very interesting phenomenon in, I would argue that in a lot of the wealth advisory business, people are charging for skill and delivering closet indexization. Closet indexization. In other words, you, nobody can stand being that different from the crowd in results. They're afraid they'll lose their fees. So everybody does the same thing. It's, it's mildly ridiculous. The yeah. world is mildly ridiculous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as Charlie pointed out in the movie, which you, only people here saw I mean, that you know, before we were married, you know, we tried to convince uh, a couple of young women that we were really more attractive than we were. I mean, <laughs> you can't expect people not to behave with their self-interest, and that was very important. That that uh, that uh, we didn't disclose all disclose all of our weaknesses uh, before the marriage. So, Warren, we're trying to be a little better. <laughs> Yeah, we, that we, is may true. we may fail a little, and I don't know about you, but I've slightly improved since I was 17. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's that's a really interesting point because if, if if fortune has just showered you with all kinds of good things, you ought to be a better person in the second half of your life than the first half. I mean, that is really should not be asking too much of people if they've if they've won the ovarian lottery and all kinds, you know, they're born in the United States and all kinds of good things have happened to them. Uh, and you've had a chance to see how stupid you were in all kinds of things you did. You know, why not have the second half of your life be better than the first half? I mean, it, 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 and I would say working from a very low base, but I mean, uh, I, I'm not nearly you know, by any intelligence test or ability to do any of that. I'm, I, you know, I haven't learned anything, but you do learn certain things only by interacting with people. And you don't know when you're two years old, no matter how much you're picking up all kinds of, of knowledge from the world, the learning machine that's going on in a two-year-old's head is just unbelievable. But it's not the same as having 30 or 40 years of experience with actually how the human animal behaves, which is that you really, you know, you're learning all the time about it. But that should make you a better person in, in the second half of your life in the first half. And I would say that if, if you say you're a better person in the second half, if you've got reason to say it in the first half, you know, forget about the first half. <laughs> Enjoy the second half. And uh, uh, I think well, Charlie and I have had the luxury of, well, they living a long time, so we get to play the, what we would regard as the, the hopeful and respectable second half. Uh, and we have had enough sense to figure out, well, we figured out what makes us happy, and we've gotten somewhat more sensitive to what can make other people unhappy and all that sort of thing. And, and I'd rather be judged by the second half of my life than the first half. And so would Charlie. Yeah, of course. 
Okay. I'm very, I, I don't even look at what I did when I was young because it would embarrass me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, any of you who wish to quiz Charlie on specifics can do so later. <laughs> <laughs> Becky. Um, this question is, uh, there's a two-part question. It's for Warren and Ajit on the first part and for Greg on the second. It comes from Roger Clefman. He says, several years ago, Mr. Buffett was quoted that a nuclear attack is the greatest risk to Berkshire Hathaway insurance. Given the present circumstances, what would the fallout be on Berkshire Hathaway insurance if a nuclear event occurred in the populated world? And then secondly, for Greg, has Berkshire Hathaway Energy suffered any physical or cyber attacks? And irrespective of that, has any special hardening of security been put into place? Yeah. Well, the first half, every day since, since uh, August of 1945, every day, uh, and accelerating dramatically when a second uh, large country had the ability to um, kill millions of people, which has been magnified by the incredible factor that truth is that, that uh, there is a risk every day. It's a very, very tiny risk, but as a jeep, well, anybody at this table could tell you, if you, if you roll, well, they had, a, they, had a, they, had some, they had a pair of dice out of the desert inn in Las Vegas for a while under a glass thing, and some guy had thrown 32 passes in a row, and I don't know what, maybe the odds are 8 million to one against that, or 4 million to one against, 4 billion to one against it. But, uh, you know, if you, if you just keep rolling the dice, you know, everything will happen. I mean, if it uh, get 330 million Americans out tomorrow, every American says heads or tails, uh, uh, and they do it every day. After 10 days, you know, you, you've got 330,000 of them that have called the flip 10 times in a row, and if you do it 10 more days, you, you've still got a bunch of people who have done it 20 times in a row, and they really think they learned how to control the flip. Well, the answer is the world is flipping a coin every day as to whether people who can literally destroy the planet as we know it, you know, uh, will do it. And, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the major problem is with people that have large stocks of nuclear weapons and, and uh, uh, ICBMs. When they talk about using tactile nuclear weapons because somebody will be upset because they're losing a war, I mean, does anybody think that somebody's willing to kill, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with, with tactile weapons? I mean, why do they stop? But you know, if they're it. it it is a very, 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 very dangerous world, and uh, and but we, but we don't have any way of no. protecting. There's no way against a big nuclear attack. No. I, I know a man who said, "I know what I'm going to do if there's a nuclear war. I'm going to crawl under the table and kiss my ass goodbye." <laughs> well, 
Yeah, and Charlie is in charge of loss control at Berkshire. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, that, 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 we have no solution for it. No, we don't. And, and there isn't any solution for it. And, uh, you know, it's extraordinary when you think about it. Uh, uh, in August of 1939, September 1st, as you all know, Hitler moved into Poland, but nobody really knew that much about it here. I mean, you know, the news you got, you got from the newsreel you went to because the theater was air-conditioned, you know, or something. So, so if I went to the movies, uh, which you wanted to do in the summer because it was air-conditioned, and in August, well, September 1st, in the case of the actual movement into Poland. But, but uh, you know, there was a few people on the screen and some guy with an authoritative voice telling you the German forces are just moved into uh, Poland, and picture of a few tanks, maybe. And uh, it was over in a minute. Now, of course, all day, every day, you see people dying who you very much empathize with it. It could be you instead of them, and, and it's just so different. But in August of 1939, there was a letter sent uh, to President Roosevelt about a month ahead of time. And why did he get that letter? He got the letter because Hitler was so anti-Semitic, basically. He drove all the, all the Jews that see it coming out of Germany, and among them were some great scientists. And uh, uh, Leo Szilard, who was obviously from Hungary, but somehow he, he got driven out, Einstein got driven out, and uh, Leo Szilard lands and eventually in the United States, and he writes a letter to tell the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, that, that the, the, uh, there's a bunch of uranium moving different ways or, or whatever it may be. I don't know anything about physics, zero. I don't know what the off and on sign is. But in any event, I, I know what the letter did. Because he writes a letter and says, uh, you know, something big may happen in physics. And, and America better get to it first. But then he has the problem of how do I get it to Roosevelt? Well, Leo Szilard, who's he, the President of the United States? So he figures if he gets Einstein to co-sign it, that the President will pay attention, and he's right. So he goes and gets Einstein, and the two of them send the letter, and they send it to Roosevelt, and the, they wouldn't necessarily have been in the United States if it, you know, Hitler, had a different, hadn't had the crazy views about, about Jews, basically. And so anyway, uh, that letter went, and uh, we developed uh, the atom bomb uh, before anybody else did. And it was a very, very fortunate development that, uh, that, uh, uh, that Leo Szilard and Einstein happened to end up in the United States rather than perhaps be someplace else. Who knows? But the accidents of history 
And the acts, there's going to be more accidents in connection with atomic weapons. We, you know, we've come close various times. I mean, it, uh, uh, we had geese flying over, you know, somewhere up north. And NORAD gets a crazy signal. And we've had wrong training tra tapes placed. When I'm at the, you know, we're in the Soviet Union or some, you know, and they, it looks like things are going on. And it's, we can't do anything about it. And uh, uh, that is one risk that Berkshire absolutely has no interest in, even though you can say everybody in the world should have an interest, but it doesn't do us any good. You know, the feeling is it doesn't do us any good to think about it. So, but that doesn't stop the fact that there are two powers in the world that, through miscalculation, uh, of the other's intentions through all kinds of things, you know, have come close in the past. And Charlie and I lived through the through the uh, through the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, we we knew there was some chance that uh, that weapons of mass destruction would be used. And believe me, there that uh, there's a lot. There's a lot more bad that can happen, and humanity has not uh, really come up with a counterforce to uh, technology. I mean, if you live back in the caveman ages, if you were a sociopath or something, you, you threw a rock at the guy in the next cave, you know, or something. I mean, it was sort of proportional to, uh, and and we kept developing, and then there was this breakthrough where. Technology is totally outrun humanity, and we'll see whether what happens. But uh, so far, so good. And Berkshire does not have an answer, though. We don't. We don't. There's no. There's certain things we don't write policies on because we, we wouldn't be able to make good on them anyway. You know, for that. For that. And, and everybody would know we wouldn't be able to make good on them. So we're not a. We. You have that risk, and there's nothing Berkshire can, can protect you against. Uh, and uh, we've been very lucky so far. Ajit, do you ever get any questions in terms of? In, in addition to all what uh, Warren has said in terms of the chance of something like this happening, the additional thing that concerns me about a nuclear situation is my, my lack of ability to really estimate what our real exposure is in the event of a nuclear event. Uh, when you're talking about you know, other big exposures we have, earthquake and hurricane and cyber, I can, with some reasonable degree of accuracy, have a point of view in terms of how large our exposures can be and how big our loss can be. When it comes to a nuclear thing, you know, I, I sort of surrender. I, you know, it's very difficult for us to estimate how bad bad can be. Very many different lines of exposures will be affected by it. And even though in almost all our con contracts we try and exclude nuclear as a covered peril, nevertheless, if something like that were to happen, I'm, I'm fairly positive that the regulators and the courts will hold it against the insurers, uh, and we will be, and they'll rewrite the contract and we'll be required to pay. For example, one thing which is already uh, being talked about, uh, 
we issue what are called fire policies. And these fire policies try and exclude nuclear as a covered peril. But there are several regulators who feel that, gee, if it's a fire policy and if the nuclear attack causes a fire, then how can you exclude fire? And you better include fire. So, you know, debates like that we will have to live with, and it will be very difficult for the insurance industry to fight back both the regulators and the court systems in terms of what is covered and what is not covered. And there won't be any regulators or anybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, uh, um, we'll leave it to a million years of reconstruction. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Einstein said that he said, "I know not what the uh, uh, weapons will be." for World War III, but I know the weapons for World War IV will be sticks and stones. You know, that, um, uh, that, there's a lot of things, you know. But, uh, that, I mean, it, it, it just, if you're worried about, about the effect of uh, nuclear attacks, uh, you know, you got other things to worry about than the value of your Berkshire. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and and uh, what other cheerful things? Uh, station. Uh, Warren, do you want me to touch on the cyber? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll ju I'll just touch on the on the cyber because it was raised. And when you do think of Berkshire and and they use Berkshire Hathaway Energy as a reference, but uh, cyber risk and managing that risk both at Berkshire, really falls across all of our subsidiaries. And it's a, it's a constant risk that's there. It's one of our greatest risks we're always evaluating and trying to literally defend against. And if we use Berkshire Hathaway Energy as an example, <clears throat> we would uh, receive billions of attacks every day against our various operating systems. So that's basically what our team is in place for both they harden the assets to deflect it and then evaluating the underlying attacks we have you know every second of the every second of the day and and by the way that would uh, we'd have a number of operating subsidiaries that experience that but obviously it's the rail and the energy and a, a few others that we we spend a lot of time on a lot of effort a lot of resources and the good news is that uh, Today, that through to today, our teams have done an exceptional job. We really haven't had a, a significant event. We've had some minor events at small businesses, but across our major businesses, across our major operating systems, uh, we've had the proper security protocol in place to avoid events. But it again, it never stops. Our team would tell you that every day that's a, a risk they recognize and a risk they're addressing within the within the businesses. So uh, a significant risk, but a significant priority for all of our operating teams. Yeah, and I would, I would add one thing. I think Greg knows way more about this than I do, but my impression from everything I've seen is that you always have, you know, historically the, the, uh, the private industry has always said the government can't do anything right. and. The, and government always says that private industry is just thinking about itself, all these things. So the truth is, I th I, from everything I've seen, is that the cooperation between government and business in terms of trying to minimize the threat of, of 
cyber problems, I think has been magnificent, you know, basically. <laughs> yeah, excellent point. When it comes to cyber, the collaboration between a variety of U.S. agencies and our individual businesses, it's incredibly strong, including down to the uh, certain agencies will submit uh, basically a lot of our operating data on, an a on a daily basis where they're helping us go through it to identify if we have uh, uh, a bad character, a bad individual who's maybe penetrated into our system. So it's a, it's a strong collaboration, and Warren, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's very unique to see how both the industry and the government's working so closely, but I think we both recognize it as such a, such a significant risk. We have to stay strongly aligned on, uh, on the approach. It's a real partnership. It's a yeah. real partnership. Yeah. And, and, and we can do better because the government is helping us and the government can do better because we're helping them and there's no lack of will on either side. And, and I, uh, cyber, cyber, I mean, it blows your mind on sort of an, but the nuclear is the, is the, is the number one threat, but it's a very, very, very low probability. Yeah, you, it, uh, it, uh, someday the sun will burn out too, you know, but, but uh, that, uh, that, uh, it is, there's really no place for two countries with large ICBM possibilities and who knows what else and everything, but so we haven't figured that out yet. You know, it, uh, it's easy to go around and say this is a solution or that's a solution, but but uh, you know, if you have two people with loaded guns facing each other, and you know, it, and not everybody is likely to be totally rational. Oh, well, we see so much irrational irrationality and where people's self-interest is involved. You know, they're doing all kinds of things to destroy themselves in terms of how they live their lives. And, and you know, it, it doesn't stop with, as <laughs> you move up the ladder. And, uh, you know, people, people, some people do terrible things and just help to very much hope that they aren't in a position where they can do it all by themselves with the rest of the world as they're was their supposed prize. Okay. Uh, if sta Station 3 will please ask something about motherhood and apple pie or something like that. <laughs> okay. Dear Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, my name is Daphne, I'm from NYC, and this is my fifth annual shareholders meeting. Well, we appreciate you coming. We do, sincerely. As you know, for the past four consecutive months, we've been going through inflation with an inflation weight north of 7% for the first time since 1982. You both have experienced this before, from 1970 to 1975, at a time where your portfolio took paper losses, and yet you made some of the best investment choices of your life. Reflecting on that, my question is, if you had to pick one stock to bet on, 
You kind of snuck up on us there for a second. <laughs> and be resilient in the inflation, which would you choose? And what specifically enables that stock to do very well and might very likely be a difficult market? Well, I'll tell you something even better than that one stock. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to one stock. But the best thing you can do is to be exceptionally good at something. If you're the best... If you're the best doctor in town, if you're the best lawyer in town, if you're the best whatever it may be, uh, you know, no matter whether people are paying you with a zillion dollars or paying you, they're going to they're going to give you some of what they produce in exchange for what you deliver, and if you've got it, and if 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 you're the one they pick out. Uh, to do any particular activity, sing or play baseball or or be their lawyer, whatever it may be, whatever abilities you have can't be taken away from you. They can't actually be inflated away from you. Somebody else will give you some of the wheat they produce or the cotton or whatever it may be, and they will trade you for the skill you have. So the best investment by far is anything that develops yourself. And again, not taxed, you know. So that's what I would do. I got some advice for you too. <laughs> when you have your own retirement account, and your friendly advisor suggests you put all the money into bit to Bitcoin, <laughs> just say no. <laughs> Yeah. Nobody can take away from you the talent you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the truth is that the world will always be willing. They'll need to do something, and some people will not have skills, and they will get less of the product of the society uh, than somebody who has other skills. And sometimes that has something to do with education, but a good bit of the time it doesn't have anything to do with education. I mean, it... It, uh, but to figure out, figure out what you'd like to be and figure out how, and what you'd like to be is what you're going to likely be good at. And, and you know, it, it, uh, the world will, will always need somebody on that tube to tell us what's going on. So, you know, study Becky Quick or somebody and <laughs> figure out, you know, what makes her good. And, uh, and what you sort sort of naturally bring to the game. I mean, I could have. Who's the guy that says you got to spend ten thousand hours doing this or that? And then that uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, you know, would say just spend ten thousand hours on something. Well, I could have spent ten thousand hours trying to become a heavyweight boxer, but <laughs> I don't think I'd have felt very good at the end of the ten thousand hours. I mean, it, it, you, you, you stumble in do what you really like doing, what you're good at, what is useful to society, and then it doesn't make any difference whether the dollar bill you know, is now worth, in terms of the purchasing power, a cent or a half a cent or a hundredth of a cent. Uh, if you're the best doctor in town, 
you know, you will, they'll bring you chickens, they may, whatever they may do, but <laughs> they can't take it away from you. And my guess is that uh, if you've come to five meetings, you know, you've got a very good future ahead of you. I mean, that, that shows, it self-selects. I mean, uh, 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 so uh, if you want to sell a piece of yourself, you know, that, we'll buy that as the best investment we can make. We'll take 10% of your future earnings and we'll give you a cash payment now. And, you know, we'll, we'll have a terrific asset. And you can have 100% of your future earnings. And if you make it, develop your talent, maybe you'll be a great dancer. People, people pay money to watch great dancers. We had Fred Astaire and his sister Adele that came from Omaha. You know, their name was Austerlitz then, but, but they could dance. And uh, Adele you know, did whatever she did with them, moved to England, and Fred Astaire went on to do a whole bunch of other things. And, Ginger Rogers had to do it all the same backwards in high heels, and she didn't get paid as much because she was a woman. There's a, but you're going to do just fine. I bet a lot of money on you. <laughs> okay. Becky? Uh, this question is for Warren and Ajib, and it comes from someone named Modi in Israel who writes, My family and I are long-term shareholders of Berkshire, and we plan to hold it forever. We like that the current management thinks in the long term to increase shareholder intrinsic value, but we aren't sure that at the time of the management change, the new management will act the same way you do. They might take risks in the insurance field where it's hard to find on the balance sheet and that might take years to realize. We would like to know how we can assess the insurance risk today and in the future or to know in time when you and Ajit are not here anymore. Well, I would say that the future for a, a long time is about as assured as you can have in the world. We don't have an answer for the nuclear problem or anything, but we have a culture that A, has worked, B, has the shares and the shareholders uh, that uh, will carry it a long way and of, you know, the first year, let's say I die tomorrow, the first year, you know, everybody says, you know, what's going to happen? Are they going to spend it all? Are they going to do all these things? You've got the shares held in a place that it can't happen. You've got a, a, a board of directors that understands that our culture is 99.9% of, of running the business. They don't think that having meetings of the committees and bringing in outside experts or anything like that mean a thing. I mean, it, it, it's a process that the, that the world has adopted, and, and they've done it for reasons we understand, but Berkshire is just plain different. We are a business that exists for people that trust us, and all we have to do to fulfill that trust is fairly simple things. We've got the people to do it. We've got unbelievable resources to do it, and it isn't that difficult as long as you've got the freedom, essentially, to do it. And the world will write stories a year after, so a year later, what has happened at Berkshire. You know, the railroad will be run the same way. Then it, 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 uh, the, big, the big worry, of course, is that somebody comes in and figures they can make billions if, as a group or, you know, people that 
sell the businesses and say it's better to be private because, you know, or it's better to be pure this or something like that. Well, you know, we're a pure partnership is what we're pure at. And, and uh, we do have what we think is a special relationship with our owners. And uh, I don't think the relationship changes and the ownership doesn't change that much. And uh, there's nobody can take us over uh, for a long, long time. And by that point, we would hope that maybe the superiority of this culture might be somewhat better understood uh, by the world. And, and we will be here. We have the same culture. We'll be here 100 years from now, assuming the, you know, we haven't had nuclear exchange or something. But uh, Berkshire is built forever. There is no finish point. Yeah. Nobody is waiting to retire or have their options vested or thinking about we don't have anybody that's thinking about, should I take another job? It just doesn't, you know, they're doing what they want to do in life. And it isn't because, you know, we're topping somebody else's offer or that, that, that uh, headhunters come around and say, we want this person or that person, and what will it take to get them? Well, they can't get them. I mean, that, uh, well, that's, uh, I don't know whether we could build it again, but we've got it. And we didn't know we were building it exactly when we took over when, you know, when we had a lousy textile mill. I mean, the, it isn't like Charlie and I sat down and he put, didn't happen to be in Berkshire, but he was my partner and everything. And so we, we were metal partners. I, we didn't sit out and work out some plan that, that said, well, we'll run the dumb textile business for 20 years and then we'll finally have to fold it. Or then we'll do this and that and everything. We just kept putting one foot in front of the other, and but we did, we didn't know we did know how we felt about the, running a public company, and one thing we wanted to do always was we wanted to have people that were in sync with us. We didn't really want that group I saw in the Flamingo, uh, you know, in 1952. We wanted people who trusted us, and we started. In my case, in a partnership, we started with seven. Charlie started the partnership. And this is the same thing. It was, we didn't go to institutions, and we didn't pay fees to people to bring in money or anything like that. We sat down with people. In my case, I handed them a little sheet of paper, and it said the ground rules. And I, I wanted to be sure we were on the same page. I said, you don't have to read the partnership agreement. I, I mean, there's no way in the world I would be taking advantage of it. You shouldn't be here if you think I did. Uh, but I do want you to, uh, I do want you to be on the same page and, and measuring me by the same yardsticks I measure myself. And and those people stayed with me. And they're still, sure, they're their children, their children's children, their shareholders of Berkshire, but they're partners. And and uh, you really, it'd be hard to do that again, but I would do it with whatever, if I were gonna be in this field, I would try and do the same thing. I would try to find people that trusted me. And uh, uh, I don't wanna be with people that are saying, how'd you do versus the S&P, you know, last month or, you know, what's your long, short position or anything like that. I, I, I sold securities for three years and it just, uh, I just didn't want to be in that position where essentially they thought maybe that 
I could do things that I couldn't do. So I finally found a way to get a few people. I mean, it was, I didn't actually stumble into it, but a few people that, that trusted me and, and they just gave me their money. And we've lived happily ever after. So it's, it's uh, the new management's got them. Well, and the management after them and the management after them. <coughs> they're just, excuse me, they're just custodians of a, a culture that's embedded. The owners believe in it. People that work there believe in it. And we're not saying others, other things can't do better or anything of the sort. We're, we're just saying this is what we've got. And we have got the directors. We've got the share ownership and all of that to, uh, and the size that essentially can ward off any attempts to change the culture. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's silly to talk about, about if our board members did this and did that. And, they, you know, and in the end, uh, obviously, we're always going to follow the law. We're a Delaware company. We follow Delaware law. But that doesn't mean that we have to do what every other Delaware corporation does and how they look at the Delaware statute. Uh, we will follow the law and then we'll, we'll, we'll run it as a group of people who trust us and, and we appreciate that trust. Charlie? Well, I remember when you had a textile mill God. and it can- I tried to forget it. <laughs> the textiles, are really just congealed electricity the way modern technology works. And the TVA rates were 60% lower than the rates in New England. It was an absolutely hopeless hand. And you had the sense to fold it. Hello? <laughs> 25 years later. <laughs> well, you didn't pour more, more money into it. No, that's right. And no, I, I recognizing reality when it's really awful and taking appropriate action is, just involves often just the most elementary good sense. How in the hell can you run a textile mill in New England when your competitors are paying way lower power rates? I'll tell you another problem with it, too. I mean, the, the fellow that I put in to run it was a really good guy. And I mean, he was 100% honest with me in every way. Uh, it was, he was a decent man human being in the, in the new textiles. And uh, if he'd been a jerk, it would have been a lot easier. Uh, I would have probably thought differently about it, but that, uh, we just stumbled along for a while. And then, you know, we got lucky that Jack Ringwald decided to sell his insurance company and we did this and that. Uh, but I even bought a second textile company in New Hampshire. I mean. I don't know how many, seven or eight years later, I mean, I, I'm gonna talk some about dumb decisions. Maybe, maybe after lunch we'll do it a little. And uh, it, it is incredible how many dumb decisions we made. Charlie and I bought that, and Sandy Gottesman, we bought that department store. And that was 1966. And you know, we were working with our own money and why in the world did we think, and Charlie 
flew to Baltimore, and I'd fly. I mean, we used to really work in those days. <laughs> and and, and the, there again, we had wonderful people. Louis Cohen couldn't have been a better guy, but everybody in that business had a different reference point. You know, they wanted to expand their company. Well, who can blame them for that? And you know, they were planning the couple of new stores and each department, the shoe department said, well, we'll do it better this time and all that kind of thing. But the whole idea was crazy. And, and uh, we got there for a little while and we figured it out, finally. And uh, we, we reversed course. Yeah. But why the hell did we do it in the first place? <laughs> well, because we were stupid. Yeah, okay, well, <laughs> uh, that's important to realize. We paid $6 a share for that stock. And uh, uh, if the department store has succeeded, it might be worth, you know, $30 a share now. And, we do. and it failed, so we, but we did other things and we merged it into Berkshire and we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I don't know whether it's $150,000 a share an hour or something like that from the six bucks. So if it succeeded, we would have made a, we would have maybe made a few dollars and because it failed, we made hundreds of thousands of dollars per share. But that's the way life is. Mm. <laughs> you just keep going. And yeah. uh, keep learning, that's the secret. Keep learning. Keep learning. Keep learning. And you can say, why would it take guys that long to learn and uh, well, we got a few minutes before lunch. We, we should let's address that problem because I, I did bring something along on that. It, it there have been well, I started buying stocks when I was 11. I've been reading every book in the library on it. I loved it. My dad, you know, it was his business, and I'd get to go down to his office and I'd read the books down there, and I saved the money, and finally, by the time I was 11, I could buy a stock, and I could tell you, at that time, uh, I went to New York Stock Exchange when I was nine. My dad took us to New York, each kid to New, New York once, uh, and he took me. I went to New York Stock Exchange and I was in awe of it. I could tell you how the specialist system worked and the odd lot arrangements and I could tell you history of finance and all of these things. And then I, then I started, I got very interested in technical analysis and charted stocks and then all kinds of crazy things. Hours and hours and hours and, and, uh, and save money to buy other stocks and, and tried shorting and, and I just did everything. And then when I was either 19 or 20, and I can't remember exactly where I did it or something, uh, I picked up a book someplace. It wasn't a textbook at school, but it was in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I, uh, you know, I, I looked at this book and I saw one paragraph and it told me I'd been doing everything wrong. <laughs> I, I just had the whole approach wrong. I, was, I thought I th I was in the business of trying to pick stocks that would go up. And in one paragraph, I, I saw that that was totally foolish. And I left. I brought something that 
it's really interesting. It's, let's put up, uh, let's put up, uh, what do we call this chart? Yeah. I don't think we, oh, oh, here we are, yeah. Let's put up illusion, uh, illusion one. Done. Yeah, there we have it. You know, now if you look at that, some people will see two faces, some people will see a base, and some people will look a long time and only see two faces. But the mind flips from one side to another, and that's another well, some name for it that uh, uh, they call it ambiguous illusions or something of the sort. Uh, there's other things that talk about aha moments or, or in the old comic strips with Popeye Wimpy would have a little balloon over his head and the light bulb would go on. There's this point where all of a sudden you see something you haven't seen. Well, it took me, I had an illusion that I was looking at, we'll say in that one, two phases, go to the, Let's go to the uh, one labeled two. And if you're, if you're looking at it from one side, you look, it looks like a, a rabbit. And if you look the other way, it looks like you're looking at a duck. And, and you know, it, 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 the mind is a very funny place. And I think people call it an apperceptive mass when you have all kinds of things going on in your mind and they go on for years and they sit there and get lost and, and then all of a sudden you see something different than what you were seeing before. Now and it took me in stocks which I was intensely interested in and I had a decent IQ and I was reading and thinking and you know and it was important to me to make some money on it. Every, I had every, every motivation in the world. And then I read a chapter. I read a paragraph, actually, in chapter eight, I think it was, of the Intelligent Investor. And it just, it told me that I wasn't looking at the duck. I was looking, you know, now it was the rabbit, whatever it may be. And whether you call it a light bulb, whether you call it, you know, a moment of truth, whatever it may be. And that's happened, that happened to me in Lincoln. I mean, it changed my life. If I hadn't read that book, I don't know how long I would have gone on looking for head and shoulders formations and 200-day moving averages and the odd-lot ratios and a zillion things. And I love that kind of stuff, except it, wasn't, it was the wrong stuff I was looking at. And I've had that happen, and Charlie's had it happen, I'm sure. It happens a few times in your life, and uh, all of a sudden, you see something important that why in the hell didn't I see this in the first place? Maybe it's a week ago, maybe it's a year ago, maybe it's five years ago, maybe it's, maybe it's learning how to get along with people. You know? I mean, whether actually it's, it's better to be you know, kind or not, you know, or whether, I mean, they're just learning how to have, if you want the world to love you, what you have to do, or what, it's, it's, it's it's, you know it when you see it, but you didn't see it for 10 years before. And I don't know whether 
Charlie's got some thoughts on that or not, but that's happened in a few situations in business where I've looked at a company for, for a decade, and, and, and then there's something that it just all gets rearranged in your mind, and you, you, know, you can say, well, why didn't I see this five years ago? Or, but usually, I've, I've had it happen a few times, obviously, and, and everybody here has, and just in different areas of their lives. And you think, how could I have been so stupid? Well, that's what Charlie's, when he was in the law practice, uh, had a partner, Roy Tolles, and he, every smart guy that would get in trouble Usually with, it was guys, and usually it was with women. And, the, and, and uh, you know, they'd come into the office and they'd look, you know, down-faced and everything, and they'd say, it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know. I mean, <laughs> and, and their lives unraveled, you know, in many cases. Uh, so there's, there is that apperceptive mass that's sitting in there inside somehow, and every now and then it produces some insight. It's better actually if it produces insight into your behavior than whether it produces insight to make money. I mean, that, that, and some people never get it. And they wonder whether, you know, whether their kids hate them or whether there's nobody in the world that would give a damn whether they live or die. In fact, they prefer they die because then they've been courting them for their art collection or whatever it may be. It, 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 it's just, Charlie would say, you know, you know, just write your obituary and reverse engineer it. And uh, not, a, not a crazy idea. But Charlie, I don't know, what, what do you know about apperceptive masses, which are <laughs> well, optical illusions? Well, I know that that's the way the brain works and that it's easy to get it wrong. And part of the trick is to get so you correct your own mistakes. And we've done a lot of that. Frequently, 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 way too late. Yeah, we've done better with the mistakes than we have with the good, reasonably good ideas. Well, it's so easy to overdo a good idea. That's what's going on now. You have a lot of good ideas that are being grossly overdone. Well, just tell me... Tell me about one that hasn't been, but tell me later when the crowd isn't listening. <laughs> and, well, that, and that's where, but look what happened to Robin Hood from its peak to its trough. Wasn't that pretty obvious that something like that was going to happen? Tell me again what it Robin Hood, when it came out and it went public and oh. got alert to everybody and all the short-term gambling and big commissions and hidden kickbacks and so on and so on. It was disgusting. Yeah. And it says the last year, and they got mad at you, and they sold a bunch of their stock, and they got the money, and... Yeah, but now they're... It's unraveling. Yeah. God, God is getting just. But a lot of the insiders have gotten... No, but they've gotten a lot of money from it. I mean, they were big sellers, as I remember. That may be, but... Yeah. There's, a, there's been some justice. Well, yeah. Uh, I have to agree with that. <laughs> well, it's a good idea to go around making enemies of people, though. That, that's another question, which we, we, we do. 
Is it wise, is it wise to criticize people at all? Probably not, but I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, well, and here's the smartest guy I know, and he's 98, and he hasn't figured it out yet. So, I mean, give up. Enjoy. Well, with that, we'll go to lunch, and we'll try to come back wiser at 1 o'clock. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's reconvene. Uh, I think we sold uh, 15 boats so far. I was told that a while, a little while ago out there, so get them while they last. We won't have the first one available for delivery for about a year, but, but people are getting 10% off, whatever that means. Uh, who order one, and I've ordered one myself, and we're, uh, things are going well in the other room, and we only got uh, seven questions, which is the new low in the first half, so we'll try and move a little faster. I can't imagine why it went that slowly. I mean, who was doing all that talking? Okay. Station four. Hi, Warren and Charlie. I'm Jeff Malloy, shareholder from San Francisco. In recent years, American companies have taken on a more active role in the political realm. Whether it is speaking out against specific bills or promoting various so social causes, often at the behest of shareholder or employee groups. While the goals of these movements can be laudable, they risk alienating significant portions of customer and employee bases. How should CEOs decide which issues to take a stand on or whether their companies should engage in the political realm at all? Thank you. Um, that's a terrific question. And that is one, obviously, I've had to think about plenty. And at one point, I said, I don't put my citizenship in a blind trust. I want to take the job as CEO of Berkshire. But I've also learned that uh, you can make a whole lot more people sustainably mad than you can make temporarily happy by speaking on any subject. And on certain subjects, they will take it out on our companies. And that means that the people that are employed by us, uh, some of them we would end up letting go. It means that the shareholders get hurt. And uh, do I really think that it's so important that I talk on every possible subject that people can get very upset about, whether uh, they should be asked to pay that price. And I've come to the conclusion the answer is no. Why, why in the world do I want to hurt the people in that other room that do all kinds of things for Berkshire? Why do I want to hurt you? Because I say something that 
20% of the country is going to instantly disagree with it, and sometimes they will be so upset about it that they will try and take it out. And since they can't scream at me, they'll, they may have campaigns against their companies or anything else. So I, I think it uh, applies to me. I'm not going to go around and, and uh, uh, take positions where instead of saying Warren Buffett says, uh, it will be, it will say, you know, Berkshire Hathaway or Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway. I get it identified, and I, I do not want to make the lives of you and them. I just decided I'm not going to be doing that. And if I want to do that, I should, I should quit my job. And if I think I'm, my citizenship, speaking out is that important, I'll give up what I love the most, which is having this job. I don't want to do that. So I've decidedly backed off. I, I, I don't want to say anything that will get attributed basically to Berkshire uh, and have somebody else bear the consequences of, of what I talk about. And that, uh, so that's where I stand. And I can tell you that at most companies, or many, that isn't fair, but in, in a great many companies, you know, the CEOs, uh, they have to think about what their board says to them, and they, they've made a point of electing people to their boards because it's socially acceptable, who represent different uh, constituencies, sometimes very strongly. And if they think they're stakeholders for this group and that group and that group, uh, they're gonna, they'll get pressured by their boards to take positions, and, and it's it, it just a territory that, that we don't, we're not going to get into. I don't, Charlie, how do you feel about that? Well, I, even more than you, I have to be very careful about what I say. <laughs> now... And the difference between the two of us is I can't resist saying a little more. <laughs> it, it, uh, I see headlines in papers just time after time after time that say Buffett's buying such and such. Well, I'm not buying such and such. Berkshire Hathaway is buying it, and it may be the work of two other people that work at Berkshire. And the people who write the articles don't have the faintest idea whether it was my... Uh, my at my instigation, or whether I'd even ever heard of it. And, uh, uh, but the headline says, the headline will attract more people if it says Buffett buying this, and if it says Berkshire Hathaway, and we don't know whether it's his, the people that work for him or him, and, and the headline is designed to bring people into the story. So it's, it, 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 the confusion is, is terrible. Uh, and, the easiest thing to do is to um, basically shut up and uh, and uh, not not have a bunch of people have facing consequences that they didn't ask for in the in the first place. So uh, with that, uh, but I'm glad you asked that question. That is a good question, and, and I probably thought more about that question than I think about. 
whether this stock or that stock is cheap. But, and with that, we'll go to, uh, well, let's see, that was station four. We'll go back to Becky. Uh, on that note, let's go to a question from David Cass. He writes in, President Biden's fiscal 2023 budget request would impose a 20% minimum tax on the unrealized capital gains for households worth at least $100 million. What are your views on this issue? And if you don't want to answer, maybe Charlie does. <laughs> well, we'll find out. <laughs> I, I, and we should, be, in all honesty, we, would, we should both say that we, we would be affected by, if it's 100 million, we'd both be affected. So our point of view is, we're, uh, and, and I have no point of view. Charlie, I, I have no, uh, per, uh, no, no point of view that I want, would want to attribute it to. I tend to stay out of the income tax things like this. My, my policy is I pay whatever taxes they, they pass, and I don't want to engage in lobbying about taxes. Yeah, we. And I would add one thing. Lobbying is really distasteful. Uh, I once did it for a candidate, and I ended up in a room with a bunch of lobbyists for cigarette companies. They didn't care about Nebraska. They didn't care about it. They didn't have anything. They just, they were there because uh, they were handing over a contribution. They didn't, and I was a convenient uh, accessory. And, and, you know, it, it made you want to throw up, basically. Uh, uh, on the other hand, we operate in the railroad business, energy business, uh, insurance business, and they're extensively regulated. And uh, I don't also want to be the only railroad that stays out of the railroad group, the only, the only insurance company that stays out of the insurance group. So, you know, other people can rightly figure that we're a free rider under those circumstances. So I, I tell the, the managers generally, you know, don't spend Berkshire's money on candidates that you like. Don't pressure suppliers to do it. I mean, Berkshire is not a weapon to use, which, and it's been used by certain people in the organization, but don't, don't use it to muscle money out of anybody else for who you like or what school your wife went to or whatever it may be. Um, and some of it goes on anyway, but I, I don't tell our people that don't belong to any trade associations. Charlie wrote one of the great letters of all time. And if you go to search, type in, I think, 1989 Munger Savings and Loan or something. We resigned from the U.S. Savings and Loan League, I guess it was. And we warned them. We said, we just cannot stand you know, what you're doing to the country and what a bunch of very nice people get together, but they decide it's in the interest of their savings alone to get do this or that. And we warned them, and finally Charlie wrote a letter, which is, like I say, available on search. And it's one of the, well, should be one of the proudest letters, certainly one of the proudest letters that's ever come out of Berkshire. And he just said, we can't stand it anymore. And we're resigning. And, uh, but that's, that's a very tough thing to do. You can't, you know, you can't it's, it's, it's a tough way to live, just go around criticizing the people you work with and the neighbors. And, and they're perfectly decent people, but 
they run into institutions that are doing things that are very distasteful to them. And, and we belong, support uh, some of our subsidiaries uh, in energy. And, 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 you know, we, I don't want to find people who are doing it for personal reasons. I mean, in that case, they're in trouble. But I don't say they can't do it because I don't want their hands tied if something comes up and essentially they're either their competitors within the industry or the industry versus this. Uh, we're not going to stand alone and say, well, we're morally superior to us, so you put your money up and fight it. So that's, that's, that's where I end up. Charlie? I've got nothing to add. Okay. It never bothers me when I don't have anything to add, but he, he, he seems stuck on that. <laughs> anyway, um, Becky, did that come from you? It did. Yeah, okay. Then Station 5. Oh, thank you, Warren and Charlie. My name is Tong Yao. I'm from China and now studying in the University of Chicago. I really admire you two, especially Charlie. You are my idol since I was a child. And my question is also for Charlie. My question is how to practice the multidisciplinary framework in making investment decisions and in life like how to make it more practical. Thank you. Charlie? Well, obviously, it, it, it helps you to know more than one discipline. There's an old saying, you know, that a man who carries only a hammer thinks everything else is a nail. And it, you make a lot of wrong decisions if you don't have the sum command of all the disciplines. That's all I ever said. And, but you do irritate people terribly when you come into their territory. You say, I'm multidisciplinary, you're the expert, and I know better than you. They hate you for it. I can test to it. I, I've done it several times. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, China, well, to a certain degree, in the, they have a culture that, that um, uh, to some extent, reveres age. So Charlie's got me beat. <laughs> I don't even try and compete with him on China. <laughs> I can't catch him on age. Okay. I'm, I'm going to try to, though. Uh, let's see. We've got Becky coming next. Mm -hmm. uh, this question comes from Philip King. He writes, in the 70s, you wrote an article entitled How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. You said that stocks cannot keep pace with inflation because companies cannot increase the return on equity. Do you believe that this is still the case? Yeah, and I, I, of course, bonds can swindle the equity investor to everything. I, 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 inflation, I should say, swindles the bond investor too. And it swindles the person who keeps their cash under their mattress. It swindles almost everybody. And... Um, the problem, if you have a business that doesn't take any capital, and let's just say the 
dollar depreciates 90% or something. So things cost 10 times as much. If it doesn't take any capital, you can charge 10 times as much, and you've kept your relative position. But most businesses take some capital. If our utility business, if, if just say that the dollar is worth one-tenth uh, some years hence from now, we have to have 10 times the capital investment, basically. And we get paid a return on that. But we have forced capital investment uh, to essentially keep them in the same place. And uh, I wrote an article that uh, related to that. And I will tell you a very one famous story, which you will all sympathize with, and that I wrote that story for Fortune. And when I finished it, it was about 7,000 words. And Fortune doesn't, didn't like publishing 7,000 words. And they had my friend Carol Loomis explain that to me, knowing that I would pay more attention to her than anybody else. But being stubborn and male, I said, uh, uh, you know, every word is precious. And they can either run it or not. So then they sent an editor, a very nice guy, out to Omaha. And this guy explained to me that just wasn't right to use that many words. And uh, I said, well, that's fine, but if you don't do it, I'll write it someplace else or something. Very disgusting behavior on my part. And then I sent it, it was, it was beginning to bother me a little. So I sent it to my friend Meg Greenfield. And Meg was a great, great, great editor at the Washington Post. And we were very, very good friends wonderful woman. And Meg, who was tough as nails with most writers, but she was kind of nice. She, was, she didn't want to really hurt me too much. So she said, I said, well, Meg, what do you think? And she said, well, Warren, she says, you don't have to tell everything you know in this article. <laughs> and and it, it, uh, it, made, it made the point. And so I write that letter, I write that article shorter and uh, but I'd say more or less the, the same thing. No, it, you're better off if, if you really could have a totally stable unit of, 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 of uh, a monetary uh, use uh, for the next 100 years. It would be better, better for, better for uh, business and investors in general. Charlie? We will go to station six. Inflation, inflation is, the question is how much, and the question is whether you can, you can decide that 2% and keep it. it. The answer is nobody knows. You know, I mean, it, it, you, you do not know, and nobody knows. You can, you can listen to all kinds of stuff, but they don't, nobody knows what the, how much inflation there will be over the next 10 years or 20 years or, or 50 years or next month. And, and people talk about it all the time because you're interested in knowing the answer to your question. And they don't know the answer, but, but there are a lot of people that will tell you they know the answer if, they, if you pay them enough. And other people that will 
tell you for nothing because they think it enhances their prestige and makes them more valuable and all that. But the answer is they don't know, and we don't know either. Uh, the best protection against inflation, though, still is your own personal earning power. If you, if you play the violin very well, you will do reasonably well during inflation. I mean, it's, it, play it better than other people, people will pay you for doing that if you, you know, all kinds of things. So your skills can't, will not be taken away and your money may be. Okay, station six.